Attention, please. Eastern Airlines Flight 19, now ready for departure. Welcome aboard the Walt Disney World Express Monorail. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we're entering the vacation kingdom of the world. There's enough land here to hold all of the ideas and plans we could possibly imagine. We call it Epcot. Will be our experimental prototype city of tomorrow. Welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast. Taking you back to the vacation kingdom of the world, the way it was, and the way it is in your memories. All right, welcome to the Retro Disney World Podcast, the official podcast of the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society. This is episode 65, Pleasure Island Part 1, where we'll be taking you back to the early designs and everything behind the scenes that got Pleasure Island on the map at Walt Disney World. I'm your host, Todd McCartney, and sitting in with me, as always, this evening as well we, while we record, uh, Mr. J.T. Couser. How are you doing tonight, J.T.? I'm great. Uh, I'm ready to to get fun with the Funmeister, or maybe that's, not tonight. Maybe that's later, yeah, part four. We might, we might see him a later on in a little bit, but uh, yeah. And coming in from Tampa, Florida, Mr. Hal Bowers. How are you doing tonight, Hal? Aloha. Doing very well, thank you. Excellent. You got some new furniture behind you. I do. We have we have relocated uh, our home offices uh, now that we have have one uh, youngling that has flown the coop. It has opened up a, a new yeah. house, a new room in our house. So now uh, I have taken over the the rumpus room and uh, have redecorated. <laughs> and so all I've those got, tiki mugs would be the crazed mugs behind you. Yeah, so I've got my got to move my tiki mugs into here and and some of my artwork, and I'm starting to get some of my Disney art up on the wall that I never had before. So it's it's really Very starting nice. to come together. Looks good. Looks good. Thanks. And as always, coming in from Philadelphia, Mr. Brian P. Miles. How are you doing tonight, Brian? Greetings and salutations. It's uh, lovely to be here. And when Hal mentioned the home office, all I could think of was those wonderful years when David Letterman would. Call out the top 10 list from the home office in, and he would <laughs> move right. it to different cities every six or eight months oh, from man. our home office in Muncie, Indiana, or something That's like right. that. It was hilarious. Yeah. Oh, one of the best David Lermans gets I remember is we, we, somebody wrote into him and asked him, Dave, what happens to the blue cards after you throw them? And this is when he had the model of the city behind him. Yes. So he had a he had this skit where Biff Henderson's sitting on a on a couch and a giant blue card comes in and like impales him on the couch and through the window. <laughs> on Friday nights you're talking about he would do viewer mail every yes. Friday night. And viewer one of my mail. favorite viewer mails ever. Uh, this was late eighties, early nineties, and at the time, uh, Ivory Soap uh, would always run uh, advertisements, commercials that talked about how they were ninety nine point forty four percent pure, pure soap, and it's still that. That's still how they sell Ivory Soap. But uh, somebody wrote in a Dear Dave, and people would always kind of set him up for jokes. Dear Dave, somebody actually wrote him a letter. You know, Ivory's soap is 99.44% pure. What's the other 0.66%? And he said, well, we have a bar here. And he pulls it out and he cuts into it and it's filled with blueberry pie filling. When he, op- <laughs> when he opens the bar of soap. <laughs> and, just... and now we know. Yeah. Right? There we go. Oh, so. I miss David Letterman. Oh, fantastic show. Fantastic show. That was my go-to watching late night television. So it's just not the same. 
it's not the same as it was. But anyway, that's what the show is all about. We always go back and talk about things that are not the same or aren't there anymore. So perfect segue. Uh, JT, uh, a couple people have written into us. I'm sure we have the Twitter. Twitter sphere has been lighting up recently. It's been a busy Facebook month. has been. Oh man, we've been getting beeped and bopped all over the place. We got messages coming in, things going in and out. Uh, so, what do you got coming to us this month, JT? Well, I find that the busier I am on there, the more responses we get. Uh, the more. <laughs> so maybe I'll shut up a month and I will have left to, less to sift through, but. Um, we, as always, we appreciate all of the, uh, questions, the comments, the info. Um, I'm going to go through, uh, quite a few of these here and some of them are quick. Some of them are more you guys responded to and, you know, we'll get some of those. Um, the first one I have here is from our old pal, Dan. Uh, this is the person of the century, Dan, if you forget, um, vote for Dan. He uh, said, hey guys, I just listened to your podcast on Crescent Lake, and it was great. I actually worked uh, with our guest from that last episode. Scott Dieter, yeah. Yep. Uh, He says he has a picture of one of the dolphins before it was hoisted onto the hotel, and uh, he wanted to share it with us. So we have this, and it's... um, it's hilarious because it's the. I mean, it you you don't get a, a an idea of the size unless you look at this picture. So yeah, this would be it's, it's massive. And it's got like the big holes in it where they're like lifting it by. And I I can't tell. You guys probably noticed this. Is that like did they fill those holes once it was up there? I assume or I, I'm not sure, but it's uh it's got like I don't know what part of the fish that would be lower down like below the tail it's all like where it's red laser eyes were gonna go yeah i mean it's like these big massive holes where the cranes hook to it so we'll we'll post that but um good good to hear from you dan and you are still the person of the century for sure do you think it had blueberry pie in it (laughs) (laughs) one way to find out how just heard pie that's all like that's all i'm gonna be thinking about tonight is pie oh yeah All right, Howe, I'm going to let you get this one because you replied. Uh, This is from Jennifer. She says, hey, guys, love the show. Um, She can't seem to find any information about the walkways around the Magic Kingdom. And I know, Todd, you can touch base on this one, too. Have you always been able to walk from the contemporary to the Magic Kingdom and Polynesian to ticket transportation, walk around the world? You know, because now we, which you guys have seen and some of you have been on, the uh, walk to the Grand Floridian from the Magic Kingdom um so so how go ahead tell us your response let me first say when this email came in it disrupted all of our day as (laughs) how and todd and i started comparing our memories to aerial maps and dated maps from the past and trying to figure out what was changed when because it all kind of runs together and that's that's how some of these go so jennifer your question like halted production in in three states and it uh you know it it, it really some of them really get us going you know other ones were like oh yeah we know the answer right away and other ones are like some some real brain busters so go ahead how yeah so so from the very beginning what we did know right off the top of our heads is that from from 1971 you could walk from the ticketed transportation center over to the polynesian and then of course there was nothing past the polynesian so it kind of stopped and right there and the western side well i don't know if i have my right my directions right but the one side of the polynesian half the buildings that stand now between the polynesian and the ticket and transportation center weren't there they, those were all buildings added to the polynesian in subsequent yes. years yes so you'd walk through a bit of a no man's land and then eventually get right. get to the great ceremonial house 
Once the Grand Floridian was added, that walkway was extended at least up to the Grand Floridian. Uh, but it stopped right there. There was no way to get over. And even when they did the walk around the world with the tiles that you could buy and put your name on, it's, it still really only went that far. Um, on the Magic Kingdom side, you were not able to walk from the Contemporary to the Magic Kingdom until the area where the buses uh, are was redeveloped, I think, several times uh up until I think in the, into the 1990s, they finally kind of reconfigured that and opened up a walkway. But what I discovered when I was going there was that you had to have a um, a card that you were actually a uh, a guest at the Contemporary in order to walk from the Contemporary to the Magic Kingdom. Security would actually stop you. The same security that was there to keep people from driving into the uh, the employee parking lot there. Right would actually stop you and, and ask for your room cards to prove that you were uh, there. So I guess maybe that way you didn't uh, park at the Contemporary and then walk over to the Magic Kingdom. Now you could walk from the Magic Kingdom back to the Contemporary and nobody would question you. <laughs> but that that was sealed off for, uh, for um, guests only. And then at some point, I guess in the 2000s, they opened it up because the last time... I happened to be at the Contemporary, I think, when we were at our retro magic event or something. I walked over and nobody bothered me. Um, on the Magic Kingdom side... And how I, uh, I just checked, I just checked some, some aerial photography here from uh, 1994, and uh, the pathway was indeed... It's, it's a very odd winding pathway, but it was indeed there in 1994. Um, I've just zoomed in into the 1990 view... And that pathway was not there. So yeah, you are it's, correct. It's, it's somewhere in the... It's a mid-90s edition. Yeah, so it was there in 94. About... So it had to be... And, and I'm seeing construction right now of the of the bus loop in 1990 where they're expanding that out. So okay. it must so have been that around 92, be, Yeah, that seems to be consistent with when I got stopped and frisked. Could, could this all be tied <laughs> in too, though, to the uh, the bricks? Like the buying of the bricks? Like they... And and yeah, part of it was that because they, they did have an idea. Like they promoted that as if you would be able to walk around the, the entirety of the right of that property and i thought at the time like well i guess they've always wanted to build a walkway what are be what a better way than do it than to get a bunch of suckers i mean good customers in order to pay for it by <laughs> buying all the paver bricks. It, well and it and it also coincides with when the pace of the vacations increased so as you remember, prior to that, you would wait for your Disney transportation to take you to your Disney theme park, and you would travel at the speed of the day. And then as you got through the 90s and Fast Pass became a thing, and and the, as I talk about the, the commando type, that you know, we're, we've got a stroller with, you know, four-day supply in case we get stranded in the parks and three changes of clothes, and, you know, you're out the door at 7 a.m. to get into... You know, the park started expanding their hours and everything just started to move at a much faster pace. Uh, that obviously created a strain on the boats, the bu the buses and the monorail. And so right. all of a sudden making it convenient for people who were at your formerly your flagship hotel, but you're certainly your second most expensive hotel uh, to be able to just walk the seven minutes to the, to the, to the park. Uh, made a lot of sense. And it also yeah. alleviated the strain on their transportation system because the only way uh, back then it was boat and monorail. There was never a bus between the contemporary and and the uh, Magic Kingdom. So. Yep. And then in front of the Magic Kingdom, um, it, the, the bricks that they put in 
kind of went in front. They had bricked up the entire plaza with, you know, with the purchase bricks. And then the a path kind of led in front of the uh, monorail platform um, around the front, quite a, quite a little bit of a distance um, up into where there's kind of like a, a path where, where, where they have a, a roadway that goes in kind of behind pirates. And then it just kind of dead ended there. And there were some light posts so you could kind of walk down there. It, there were times when you could sort of pick up some of the boat transportation. There was like an overflow docks down that way. But it just it just kind of dead ended there. So it wasn't really a full the walk around the world never really went around the world. And I don't even think they <laughs> no, bricked that area to the contemporary. I think it really ended up just being in front of the Magic Kingdom it, and kind of down that way. Yeah, it was in the front of the Magic Kingdom and then the, the TTC walkway and then part of um and then obviously between the wedding pavilion and um polynesian was eventually okay. con, con, uh, added on because those are still those are wedding bricks and other things over there mm. um but yeah anything it didn't make it beyond that um i don't know if it ever was going to really go completely around the world that's, that's the thing it seemed like the the you know the bridge they made now where the water pageant stored that little canal that's mm-hmm. i mean it, it didn't stop right there but it it went a ways down there but it was always just like a dead end with some lights and then benches down there like you could walk down yeah. there and sit if if memory serves they still had not ruled out the uh, venetian resort if you remember the eisner they revisited that pad between the ticket and transportation center and the contemporary oh right, about right. Building, twice yeah, about, <laughs> yeah at some time around the 90s when they were when they were looking at uh, when they were doing all this other work around the traverse and things. So I think at some point in, in their plans was it may make total sense to have a footbridge and other things to, to take you between these various resorts. Cause there's going to be a whole other resort between the ticket and transportation center and the contemporary that you know, never got built. Uh, the only thing I'll mention, there was a bench at the end of the walkway. So you could go down all, all the way to the end, uh, which was about halfway I think to the uh, to the lagoon where the where the electrical water pageant pulls out, uh, and so the pathway went about halfway, and there was a little bench at the end uh, that you know you could walk down there if you were wanted to have a private conversation or a quiet moment, and there was a little beach uh, dug out there uh, close to that side, which they used for photo ops on occasion, and I bring it up because in the nineteen ninety four disney calendar uh walt disney world calendar uh they staged a shot there of alice in wonderland with uh, the mad hatter and i think a little boy and a little girl and they were having a tea party on that beach with the grand floridian off in the distance in the background and uh, i might have to include that in the show notes uh, but I, I, that, that just came up in our monthly count, my monthly calendar tweets, I don't know if it was February or January, but I think it was February. Well, so, around there too, that beach is, that's where there would have been bleachers in what the seventies, eighties, like for the water ski show. Remember you had that little ticket and you'd go out that, of the magic kingdom. It was like over there on that side of the, the docks. So that, yeah. So there were two locations. One was over by the magic kingdom mm-hmm. and in the beach there, uh, where the walkway was on that side. And then the other one was next to the ticket of transportation mm-hmm. center, right? Mm-hmm. Sort of between the TTC and the Polynesian. Yep. All right. Well, you see how, what you did to us, Jennifer there. It just, it got crazy real fast. So <laughs> it doesn't take much. Yeah. Good, good question. And, um, you know, if you, if you have any photos of that area, you know, at any time, that'd be interesting to see, you know, I know it's a weird spot, but we get weirder submissions of, of interesting photos. Um, and, and speaking of that, 
you know, we got a couple different ones in here. You know, that, that leads me into, a, we, we get a lot of, not a lot, but they are fun to get. Uh, Jake Perillo, or Perillo, uh, he wrote us with a picture, and he just said, you know, we're trying to figure out where this was. My family and Brian and Howe came in, and they, they basically said, like, yeah, you're in the Chapeau, the hat store, and here's the well, year. And they, there were th- It was him and his sisters, and they were all yeah. standing in new hats somewhere inside, and you could tell in, in the background that there were a few hats on the rack, so it was, I... I you know, I said it was definitely a hat store. I thought it was the Chapeau in uh, in Town Square. And then Hal took a, a look at it and said, oh, no, no, that's the one that was in Fantasyland. So that's that's always cool. And if you have those photos, like you said, you know, if it's an obscure one, you're not sure, um, totally send that to us. And we, we're pretty good at identifying things. I mean, I, I've seen the, the fellas here identify a tag on a shirt and they, that, that tells them the year and it's, it's something else. So um, definitely send those our way. We love that challenge. Yeah stump the the experts if you you want to call it, it that be, it beats real work every day when those emails yeah. come in. <laughs> um this one is from man not that long ago but it feels like it's forever ago I, we just missed it on the last podcast from randy uh he was listening to way back when we did the fort wilderness episode and believe it or not he was a character performer from 1984 to 1989 he worked the breakfast at pioneer hall in fort wilderness oh Four characters in a lead worked the breakfast, and there were two or three seating. He doesn't remember. Chip and Dale would perform with the male and female singer-dancers. The other two characters, Livered Lips and Wendell from Country Bear Jamboree, would visit tables before and after the main show. Now, I made the mistake. We talked about the character of Melvin the Moose. It looked like a big animatronic head. They took off the wall of Country Bear Jamboree, put it in Pioneer Hall, and Melvin took part in the show. Uh, Randy enlightened me. He says the Melvin the Moose head on stage was not an animatronic. Uh, it was just a puppet head. So there was a person back there, and they would operate the head from behind the stage, controlling the mouth and the eyes. It would have been very difficult to sync an audio animatronic as the show was freestyle instead of pre-recorded, and the singers and piano player provided all the content. An audio technician would cue Melvin's dialogue at the right time. Um, he says it was fun breakfast to work, especially when the host would bring baskets of chocolate chip muffins to the green room between the shows. So uh, that that's awesome, Randy. Thank you for clarifying that, because I don't know if that that's like one of those stories that I feel like is lost to time, how Melvin the Moose worked at Fort Wilderness. So Plus there were muffins. Muffins, yes. Which we probably have the recipe for. So um, the next one we got was from uh, our friend Ed. Ed says he used to work in a position where he'd plan conferences at Disney. Um, in 2017, he negotiated with the Swan and Dolphin to host a conference, and he uh, would always get a Christmas gift from the Swan and Dolphin. In 2018, he opened a box from them. So this was just you know two, three years ago. And he got the actual plushes that we, we talked about as a gift, and we were kind of all blown away that they were still giving those out. And I don't, I don't, maybe they had an old supply. Maybe they, maybe they still sold them up until 18, but um, I was kind of blown away by that one. So, yeah, I, I stayed there in November and I think how has stayed there recently too. They, they don't have, at least not in the dolphin, any like hotel run gift shops anymore. They have the grab and go. That's kind of a multifunction shop. And then there's a Disney gift shop and a few kind of froofy, uh, supply stores, but there's no like hotel gift shop there, like traditionally. So my guess is that there was a supply of them that when they got rid of their hotel branded gift shop, it, they went into a closet somewhere and <laughs> the, uh, the marketing folks said, Hey, this is great. You know, we'll, 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 uh, we'll send them out to these people. 
Exactly. Well, thank you for that. That was super cool, and we'll uh, we'll share that picture for sure of your uh, your little setup there. Two more here, two quick ones. Uh, this one's from Eric. Eric says that uh, his favorite resort, uh, the same as Michael Eisner, is the Yacht Club, and uh, he always he he really gets a kick out of the unique aromas that each resort has. So he found a secret. If you would like to replicate the smell of the Yacht Club, all you have to do is go to your local drugstore, buy some Axe body spray in the flavor or scent of Epic Sky. And he thinks or says it smells exactly like the Yacht Club. So a little fun task for you to do there. Huh. I wonder how many ladies would like it if you smelled like the Yacht Club. That probably would drive them crazy, <laughs> Only right? women of discerning tastes. That's right. <laughs> That's that's awesome. So uh, you might have uh, just boosted axes. <laughs> what happened? We just sold a bunch of Epic Sky. I don't know what happened. Um, all right. So our last one was actually an Instagram message, and uh, Angela wrote us in. Angela, this is was you know we get messages all over the place, and you know we we try to get to all of them. Sometimes it's just a thumbs up because it's super cool and that. But this this got us going again. Angela wrote us a picture of herself in a store at Epcot, and she's standing next to an inflatable figment. And we, we started looking, we're like, was this like a, you know, a Baymax walk around? Was this something that is in the store just sitting there? Um, Brian and Howe were in on this discussion with me. Uh, I don't know, do you guys want to talk about yeah, what you found? Yeah, this was another work stopper because the picture was of those inflatables that people put up for mostly for the Christmas holidays. I mean, I know there are Halloween ones and other stuff now, but they're the ones that have like the little hairdryer type air compressor attached. And, you know, the, 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 the display inflates with a light inside of it to, to be a blow up Santa or whatever. And they become more light. It's yeah. They've become more elaborate over the years, but uh, it's about what? Six foot tall. Would you say? Yeah, about. And, and this one was of, it's a very good representation of figment. And so, I saw it and I said, guys, what is this? Like, does anybody remember this thing? Because it it was clearly, uh, uh, you know, a one-off. It wasn't something they sold because we would have known more about it. Uh, and Hal remembered seeing it somewhere online uh, in the last couple of years, a, a fuller representation. And then we found, uh, we'll have to link to it, but another Disney site where a guy had a screen grab a video showing it inflating from the little uh, suitcase. So this led me down to a, a, a rabbit hole of, well, when did those inflatables get invented? Uh, we tracked it down to a German company uh, in 1986. They invented the inflatable lawn ornament. Uh, and JT and I both had a memory that they really didn't take off here um, in, in sales until the 2000s. Uh, which which is an which is accurate. It was backed up by an article written on the history of the company. Although I remember them around here earlier than that on lawns, but they just hadn't become like a big thing. In fact, we used to make fun of the people who would decorate their houses for Christmas with those inflatables because it was like you were cheating. You know, you took you five minutes to decorate <laughs> your house for Christmas. You put three of those inflatables on the lawn. And then during the day, it looks like a plane crash happened in your yard. Yes. (laughs) So, so that's my impression of a, of an ornament deflated. But it was, Disney was crazy for inflatables in, in the nineties, especially that's, that's when we saw, I think the first large scale inflatable I ever saw was in Mickey's Starland. So when they, 
or birthday land, I should birthday say. Land, when they when they opened up birthday land, there was a giant Mickey inflatable. They brought a lot of the inflatables on their road shows to promote yep. the Magic Kingdom. And then at Epcot, oh my gosh, they went crazy with during Surprise in the Skies where there were giant inflatables of the characters in front of a bunch of the countries. Yeah, so and it makes perfect sense because you figure this company invents these things in nineteen eighty six. Disney is always looking for the latest, newest thing, especially back then to incorporate into their shows and into their parks and, and into their promotions. And so they did. They had the they had the inflatables that t- House talking about Birthday Land. So two years after the company started, they they have them Birthday Land. And then in that 89, 90, 90, there's Surprise in the Skies. They have all kinds of infl- an inflatable almost for every World Showcase country with a Disney character in a uh in an or you know a, an ethnic costume from that country uh when the uh, studios opened when disney mgm studios opened part of their nighttime fireworks show was a giant inflatable sorcerer mickey that That's would inflate right. on the roof of the of the um of the chinese theater uh and then of course i think the capstone to it was the 25th anniversary birthday cake castle so you're taking that up to 96, 97 in the beginning of 98 at the Magic Kingdom, uh, about a third of the ornamentation on that on that birthday cake castle were inflatable things that were attached to it that stayed inflated. I don't know if they left them inflated overnights when the park was closed or not, uh, when the lights are off. It would be really interesting to know if they deflated those things overnight and then just reinflated them in the morning uh, before the sun came up. But uh, that's the that's kind of the last I remember. You know, like the last hurrah of the inflatables was the birthday cake castle. Yeah, it's amazing. They had a huge, huge legacy sit there. So yeah. I, I wonder then if like was if that was a small scale test or something that they did a figment and they were like, yeah, we'll have a place where we can put that. Yeah, well, the, the video and it's probably from <clears throat> Walt Disney World Inside Out or one of those Disney Channel type shows where they did behind the scenes Imagineering. But it's this we'll, we'll, like I said, we'll link to it. But uh, it, it's a little you know, silver, like metal attache case, yeah, attache yeah, case. Like a brief, metal yeah. travel suitcase type thing uh, that someone would carry photographic equipment or something. And then you pop the top off, plug it in and figment inflates and, and sits on the, so that, so the, 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 the suitcase housing hides the, inf, you know, the, the air compressor that, that inflates it. But I, I mean, I was looking at it saying, boy, this would be great. Like, I wonder where this thing is. And it's in some Imagineer's basement now. You know, like that's, that's where it is. Like, it's, I'm sure it disappeared when they pulled it off stage, but. Oh, it's uh, awesome. It's like, yeah. I love the briefcase. It's like you could walk around with that and it either looks like uh, yeah. plutonium from your corner drugstore or, you know, one of those things <laughs> from like the sharper image catalog. I, I, I really hope, uh, I know some of the folks from D23 that do events, listen to it, like find it in the archives if it's there. Cause that is, that is something you should absolutely bring to one of your next uh, destination D events. Yeah, it's very well colored. It's, you know, got the wings, the long tail. I mean, it's it's neat. Hands are up, like, for some reason, like, stay back, you know, this whole thing. But um, very cool uh, to see a, an actual real-life photo of it. And what what store was that in, her photo, how? Oh, it was in the Centurion. Okay, so, you know, if you're in the Centurion in this era, you might have very well got a photo next to it and not known it was such a big deal, but it was like, it was sitting there, I, I would guess, next to some other Journey into Imagination merchandise or yeah, something. Yeah, I, I believe it, in the other photo that I saw, which I was not able to find again, it was a, a display in the middle of a bunch of figment plush, so it was like a little figment section within the store. And, sure. and if I remember the video correctly, its tail wagged up and down. Uh, oh. as a result of the you know the air compression or the 
So it was like movement and everything going on there. It was neat. Yeah, definitely cool. Thank you, Angela. We appreciate that uh, share on uh, on the Instagram messages. Uh, JT, before we wrap up here, uh, we also had uh, Kevin Wizardo wrote in, and if you remember last month, we were talking about the FAA and all the cell, the, t- the height of the tower, whether it needs a red light on the top of the dolphin. Um, he did a little further digging. He started to read a uh, advisory circle. Uh, has 109 pages, and um, he basically said he found out that uh, yes. Structures over 200 feet do need to be marked or lighted, but an FAA study um, can override that. So he started to search the archives and, and didn't find anything of significance on Disney property. But from what he can tell and what I think we agree is that there was a study done for these for a variety of reasons. And they certainly were not uh, uh, deemed as necessary. And maybe to House point uh, last month with the lighting, just lighting up the the building so much or those laser beam eyes inside the swan right i forgot <laughs> about those so uh and brian i think you had something else uh, before we close out the mailbag correct well we get a lot of emails every month from people who are listening to uh our back catalog of uh of of episodes and our friend bj major who's been a great resource for us uh especially from lake buena vista shopping village uh, where she worked in in 1976 77 i think uh, has been listening to a bunch of the episodes and, and sending us emails. So we want to thank her and everybody else who's written to us. Uh, and and, and every, as we appreciate it every month, because a lot of times they're bringing up stuff we haven't thought about in three or four or five years since we recorded the episode. So it's always fun for us to kind of go back and revisit that stuff. If you'd like to reach out to us, uh, podcast at retrowdw.com is the email. You can uh, shoot us direct messages on social medias, um, you know, comment on a, on a web page story, anything you want to do to uh, to get out to us. And uh, hopefully uh, your, your question, comment, or uh, piece of info will end up on a future episode. All right. Before we get to this month's main topic, we do have a prize to give away, and uh, that is Boundless a Realms. A new car? Oh. Cavalier. <laughs> That's right, a Cavalier. Wouldn't it be great if for our next event, we'll just have tickets give out on a machine as you go in and be a random winner? Not we a winner to, to that. That can be arranged. Mm-hmm. I think we might be able to do that. So, um, so yes, uh, we we were uh, last month we talked about uh, Fox and Nolte's book Boundless Realms, which is about the behind the scenes as well as a in depth um, research and discussion on the haunted mansion and all things that that created it. It's a great, fantastic read. Um, so we, they, uh, she gave us a copy, um, for us to give away and, uh, we held a little contest. Everybody who wrote in and gave us the code word spooky or AOL keyword. Should we call that the LBVHS uh, or retro WDW keyword spooky? Uh, Um, put that code in and we put it in the random wheel generator and uh, we have a winner. So congratulations to Isabel Carlton uh, she has won a copy of Boundless Realms, and uh, that's in the possession of Hal Bauer, so he will get that out to you as soon as possible, and uh, we'll write to you and get your address and get that out. So congratulations, and listen, uh, continue listening to the show for other random giveaways that we'll be doing across the year. So, All right, well, it is time to get into this month's main topic, and as we talked at the top of the show, uh, the topic of this month is Pleasure Island, and I know... And we're going, oh, let's talk about Adventures Club and test tube shots and walking around, and we're going to get there. 
we promise. But as always on this show, we take our time and we turn the clock. It wasn't quite as pleasurable at the outset. That's the... That's that's right. You got to go through the unpleasurable (laughs) island part first. And honestly, if you consider uh, shots out of test tubes pleasurable, we need to chat. But anyway, everybody has the different time of their lives to enjoy this. Um, But as we always do on this show, we love turning the clocks way, way, way back. And uh, that's what Howe is going to do for us tonight, where we go way back... Uh, into what actually led Walt Disney World to even entertain the idea of bringing a nighttime entertainment, dancing, and uh, libation-type uh, facility to to uh, to Walt Disney World. Uh, so there's a lot of back history in that, and then we will do a part two episode where we follow up beyond that. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Uh, I believe Mr. Merriweather is waiting for us, Mr. Merriweather Pleasure. So uh, I don't want to delay him anymore. So Mr. Howe Bowers, let's turn those clocks back and uh, start off on Pleasure Island. Sure. So <laughs> the story in Pleasure Island, oddly enough, Todd, as you're saying, it, it could really begin in any number of places. So like like many of our topics, it's really not just one story, but several intertwined. So for this episode, um, I'll roll that clock back to 1967 in Pensacola, Florida, where an ex-Navy pilot named Bob Snow lived. Now, Bob Snow was also a Dixieland jazz trumpeteer. Uh, he played around the Pensacola area with his band called the South Hangar Six. Um, and he did something very interesting for Florida. He, he took his last military paycheck, along with money that he scraped together by selling his Porsche Roadster and some of his possessions, and he rented a dilapidated warehouse in a rundown area of town and opened up a bar where his band could play permanently. This would be the first Rosie O'Grady's Good Time Emporium. And with a, within a short amount of time, the venue proved so popular that Snow was able to purchase the warehouse building outright and build additional bars and restaurants. So, uh, jazz, good time... Pensacola, how does that get us to Florida? Well, after, as you say, how does this get us to Orlando? So he was actually a pilot and he, he still flew. So after being diverted to Orlando on his way back from a business trip and skywriting lessons. So the skywriters in Orlando actually started <laughs> as part of Rosie O'Grady's. Um, Snow, pet, Snow met up with a pilot buddy and a fellow Dixieland jazz aficionado, and this gentleman suggested that he open up a new Rosie O'Grady's in Central Florida. So on the way back to the airport after meeting up with his friend, Snow took a detour into downtown Orlando, and he discovered the long-neglected Church Street Railroad Station corridor. So back in Orlando history, you know, as as it was in many cities, you know, there was, there was bustling activity around, you know, the railroad downtown and and the big stop there. And then over time, you know, that area became abandoned and just, you know, sort of rotted away. So um, he thought that would be a good place to replicate his success in Pensacola. So he took, um, even though the Rosie's was doing fine, he actually ended up taking a mail delivery job that would allow him to travel from Pensacola to Orlando each day. He worked his business meetings in the morning and eventually he struck a deal to rent the former Orlando hotel and Slemons Department Store Buildings for $250 a month. And on July 24th, 1974, the Orlando Rosie O'Grady's Good Time Emporium opened. And how is this? Is this related to the Rosie O'Grady's in New York City by any chance? I don't know, to be honest with you. Okay, I don't I don't believe so. Okay. Uh, Great I'm, place for a shrimp cocktail, by the way. Just in Okay, so I don't know if that was something that grew out of this hmm. uh, separate, or just the name was popular, so... Uh, but I, I do not believe they were related. I thoroughly enjoy a good shrimp cocktail, so now I'm making a note of that. 
big, the big, big, big shrimp. Awesome place. So in the panhandle, Rosie's grew into something called Seville Row, which is a complex of bars. And it didn't take very long for that success to be repeated in Orlando. In 1976, he added the restaurant Apple Annie's Courtyard, a gourmet, um, sorry, a gourmet cocktail bar, William Arlane's Aviator Pub in 1977, uh, a top 40 dance club, Phineas Fogg's Balloon Works in 1978, and then in 1982, an incredibly ambitious three-story country western bar called the Cheyenne Saloon and Opera House. Now, at the Cheyenne Saloon, there was a 30-minute country music showcase that was taped at the bar. Uh, every week, beginning on March 10th, 1984, it ran for eight years on the Nashville Network and brought all kinds of big stars to Orlando, including George Jones, Tammy Wynette, Porter Wagner, Tanya Tucker, Charlie Pride, Roger Miller, and then newcomers like Travis Tritt, Alex, Alan Jackson, and Garth Brooks. Publicized the Church Street Complex to a national television audience and, and brought a lot of attention to Orlando and the concept of nightlife there. So Church Street really became incredibly popular during that time period. Um, and there were a few key factors to its success. A single ticket admission to all the highly themed bars and restaurants. An infectious, fun atmosphere that encouraged patrons to feel like they were part of the show. Live music everywhere. Characters such as Red Hot Mama and Uncle Sam who had mingled with guests when not performing. And the concept of taking abandoned buildings, which had served a variety of purposes then being lavishly restored and enhanced uh, and, and used again for these, these bars and restaurants. So by 1985, Church Street Station was Florida's fourth largest attraction behind Walt Disney World, SeaWorld, and Busch Gardens with 1.7 million visitors a year. So it really was a tourism powerhouse at that time. So how does this relate to Disney? Well, meanwhile, a few miles up the road, Michael Eisner and Frank Wells were noticing a gap in the offerings at Walt Disney World, which they had just taken control of in September of 1984 as CEO and president, respectively, of Walt Disney Productions. And they realized when the parks closed, there just wasn't a lot to do. Um, Eisner and Wells were planning a massive energization of all of Disney's business units, prepping for large investments in their film and television divisions and also in their theme parks. So hoping to achieve something similar with their massive land holdings in Florida, they formed the Disney Development Company, uh, called the DDC for short, to spearhead the planning of new resorts, residential, and retail centers in Florida and beyond. WED, soon to become Walt Disney Engineering, would continue to handle the development of the parks, but everything outside of the gates would fall to the Disney Development Company, and the Grand Floridian was the first hotel uh, that was a large project for DDC. Eisner asked DDC to come with ideas to transform the Disney shopping village at Lake Buena Vista into a higher energy location with more nightclubs, upscale bars and restaurants, and high-end retail. The task seemed very well suited to them, um, as that or a lot of people in the organization had come from the background of, of doing exactly that. Um, they dutifully drew together a list of top national chain tenants who might participate, uh, but Eisner was reportedly not really compelled by their presentation. Uh, Marty Sklar, who was at the meeting, suggested that Eisner allow Imagineering to take a crack at the project, and Eisner agreed. Uh, Sklar assigned Imagineers Rick Rothschild and Chris Carradine to lead a small team dedicated to the project, which at that time was still nameless. Um, what they would come up with was familiar in some ways to Orlando residents, but innovative, risky, and boundary-pushing for a company with a squeaky clean image to uphold, and while being known for innovative, internally seemed very resistant to change. 
So we'll take a deep dive into the development of Pleasure Island and the clubs in a later episode. Uh, but for this episode, we're going to keep it a very high level. Um, Chris Carradine was an architect. Um, he would be in charge of the design of the island. And Rick Rothschild was in charge of determining the types of clubs and the entertainment that the island would offer. And that was not the first plan for down there in that area, was it, Hal? No, it was not. In fact, it's funny, Brian, because they said they kind of eyed this property that was north of the existing shopping center. And they thought, hmm, instead of instead of just, you know, redoing the shopping center that was there, what if what if we added on? There seems to be this land that's unoccupied. But what what was supposed to be there before, Brian? Well, they so the shopping village, remember, opened 1975 and then uh, the Empress Lily opened in 1977. Um, that, that, and that's where the area stopped originally, uh, Dick Nunes, when he was president uh, of the resort and Disney parks and attractions, his plan, his idea was that beyond the Empress Lily, that that riverboat would be the beginning of a new Orleans themed area, a Bayou new Orleans themed area. Uh, that would be shopping and dining and nightclubs and, you know, borrowing a bit from Bourbon Street and a, and a, and a bit from, uh, you know, the New Orleans architecture altogether, that that French and Creole inspired uh, architecture and the low slung buildings. And and that ultimately didn't happen uh, for a couple of reasons. I mean, 1977 is a good time frame for opening the Empress Lily. The economy got really bad. Uh, I mean, it was never great in the mid 70s, but. By the late 70s, by the end of the Carter years, stagflation was a thing that they got. It was really, really bad. And the first couple of years of, of the Reagan administration, so you're going from like 77, 78 into like 1983. Uh, and that's the end of the Ron Miller era when Michael Eisner comes in in, in 1984 uh, when the economy starts to improve. So really, there was no money. Uh, to sit there and, and develop that area. So the plans kind of fell by the wayside. They were drawn out, though. I mean, they did have they did have a sketches for what they wanted to do. And pieces of that survived up the, the river there uh, when they developed beyond the old Key West Resort. They developed Dixie Landings and Port Orleans. And that was all kind of based off of what originally was uh, the Nunes plan for the expansion of the shopping village to the New Orleans area. Yeah, it looks like it, but from the plans, it looked like it actually would have been really nice. I, uh, I mean, how many times have we looked, whether it's there or uh, what's the Western one they were going to put by River Country? The I always, oh, I always Buffalo want, Junction. Buffalo Junction. I always want to say Petticoat Junction. It's Buffalo Junction. I mean, <laughs> every time we look at those things, we're like, oh, man, we wish they built those. <laughs> yeah, crazy. So, so I, I, you know, it was such a good place to build something these guys kind of accidentally discovered it too because i guess they must not have known that something was planned to be there before um so the architect Carradine he took inspiration from vancouver british columbia's granville island which was a waterfront industrial development once occupied by warehouses mills factories and shops that serviced local logging mining and shopping industries uh, but in 1979 was redeveloped into a large public market um, that island grew quickly into an arts and entertainment district with theaters and unique shops and restaurants, drawing locals and tourists, and, and winning architecture awards for the innovative reuse of existing architecture, grafting extensions onto buildings and adding glass windows when necessary, or simply just painting the tin walls, you know, bright colors to add energy to the location. 
So, uh, so Chris Carradine really liked this concept and thought, Hey, let's do that in Florida. That'd be a great thing to pattern this after. But then the question is, how do you reclaim an industrial area when there's no industrial area to reclaim? <laughs> so the answer to that in part came from the world of improvisation, which takes us back to Epcot Center in 1982 when Disney had a slightly different problem. It had built a dazzling world showcase, but without a lot of attractions. So they were leaning heavily on folk entertainers from each of the pavilion's countries to keep guests engaged. Um, entertainment scouts from Disney actually attended the Bay Area Renaissance Festival, which has the unfortunate acronym of BARF, <laughs> uh, over by me in Largo, Florida. And they noticed how the crowds responded to the performers from Minnesota's SAC Theater, uh, S-A-K, and they hired them for a three-month contract to perform in Epcot's UK Pavilion. So if you ever saw, you know, the Renaissance Fair-style show in the UK Pavilion, that that was them. Uh, they were such a hit in the UK that SAC was quickly asked to develop uh, a show for the Italy Pavilion. If you remember that, Todd, I'm sure you saw this many times, the Theatre de Bologna. Oh, yeah, many a times. I think yeah. my grandparents always stopped for it. Sure. Oh my God. It, it, <laughs> it was, was the thing so, to see. It know? was so, their shows were so popular. I mean, they drew and they knew how to draw a crowd too. I mean, they would literally ring bells and basically tell people to fill in around it. And like people were crazy for that. Um, WDI ended up being so impressed by the way that SAC actors engaged with the park guests. They asked uh, SAC artistic director, Craig McNair Wilson, uh, to come in as a consultant on some of the projects that Disney was developing at that time to see if there were opportunities to bring that same kind of actor-guest relationship and interactions into the new uh, entertainment district that they were planning, and, and as well as uh, parks like the Disney Studio Park that they were kind of planning in Florida and Typhoon Lagoon. And we should kind of emphasize these three, um, these three areas were all being developed simultaneously within disney so you had typhoon lagoon disney mgm studios and pleasure island all under development at the same time so the resources within wdi were getting stretched kind of thin it was the disney decade how it was it was um so uh what they ended up getting from him was the raison d'etre for their fictional reclaimed industrial district um, Wilson riffed with Imagineers Rothschild, Carradine, and Joe Rohde, and they developed a rambling history of the rise and fall of Meriwether Adam Pleasure, from his discovery of the peninsula while plying Florida's inland waterways, to the foundation of his shipbuilding and shipping empire, to the accidental explosion that made Pleasure Island into an island, to Pleasure's disappearance in the Antarctic, his business passing to his sons, who mismanaged the empire into bankruptcy, and then a hurricane that struck the island and led to its abandonment, and then it being rediscovered by Disney in 1987, who could then reclaim and rede redevelop it. So um, this was perhaps the first time that story, not theme, not location, became the predominant driver of a design of a Disney project. So... Um, Every building, every converted store, every plaza, every staircase had a story reason for existing. I mean, this really was kind of a different take for Disney that we see a lot more today. You know, how I, I'm thinking about how you just mentioned there was the first one, that absolutely, that has the whole story that's told 
I think the problem with some of the projects prior, especially like Big Thunder Mountain, it had a backstory, but it was never told. You were you had to piece it together, and it didn't unfold as blatantly as they did with Pleasure Island, or at least they attend, intended to do. You know, um, Thunder Mountain, this whole thing about the haunted and the mountain and the you know Indians chasing or whatever it was. You never, you never got that. As far as you know, you were going on a wild ride and uh, over a butte. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. That's all right. it is. So this one's really, it was, it was out there and totally different. Oh, very, very out there. Um, so, uh, Marty. So they basically, as they they're developing this, they went back and forth, and um, uh, let me find his name again. So, Craig McKenna Wilson started writing all this stuff down as, as they got into this. And it really became this huge, long rambling document. And then finally Marty Sklar was like, look, Hey, take this, rewrite this into a condensed form, you know, make it fun, make it pithy. And, and he eventually turned this into, I think it was a nine page, like typed document called the final ultimate semi-official history of Pleasure Island. (laughs) Uh, so but they, still they it's paid like, people to do this right right but still and if you think about it so at the same typhoon lagoon also has you know a very rich detailed backstory um that was developed at this time which we won't even get into here but like it it has a very deep story and for whatever reason you know i think imagineering really fell in love with um with improv and you know, being able to develop these ideas and these stories, you know, where, where before, you know, I think you always had a wall to go like, go make me one of these when they didn't have a Walt anymore to kind of drive the development development of, you know, something like he would literally say, Hey, I, I want a Matterhorn. And they would go make a map, a Matterhorn. Um, I think this kind of helped them, you know, come up with the ideas for things, you know, they would, I think now a lot of the decisions were business related. It was like, Hey, we need a nighttime shopping district or, Hey, we need a new flume ride, you know, over here. And then it was like, okay, well, what do we do? So, so having someone that could, you know, help them be creative, you know, and collaborative, I think was really important for them. Um, So to make this, you know, huge story accessible to guests, excerpts from the documents were turned into 26 plaques placed around the island, often tucked in kind of obscure locations for the curious to discover. So it's interesting, Todd. They they did publicize the story a little bit in like Disney Magazine mm-hmm. and in the Birnbaum Guides. And they had these, you know, plaques everywhere. But it wasn't really shoved down your throat yet. Right. You know, it was kind of still up for you to discover that. And, you know, if me... You know, when I first went to Pleasure Island, you see this little plaque and you're, you read and you're like, and I, you know, I guess I'm the type of guy that when you go to a, any kind of historical place, it's like you read the plaques, but they were really good at the end of, at the bottom of each plaque to let you know, you know, there are more of them out there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's they, like the they had, Sorcerers of the, Ma- of the Magic Kingdom, the first version, 1.0, right? <laughs> yeah, very, very much so. You know, they like I'm picking up this one from a. I took photos a lot of a lot of these as as I first visited there and before they closed. Amazing. So, yeah, <laughs> shocker, right? You might be the only guy. I no, actually, there's at least two or three of us. <laughs> <laughs> now, are all the plaques gone? Are there any sitting around at the at Disney Springs anywhere that you know of? I, 
I th- I think now that it's been redeveloped, I don't think there are, are any of them left. When it was in that quasi-abandoned yeah. state, they were still there. And you could still find some of them, especially the ones that were tucked in the more obscure areas because they just, you know, nobody knew, nobody yeah. cared. So they were still there. But like, you know, they would say something like, I picked up the one from the Portobello Rose Garden. And at the bottom it says, the following history of Pleasure Island and it's uh history his illusionary uh inhabitants are misrepresented on the ungenuine history plex located at each island entrance so it kind of pushed you in a way to like go find the other ones so it was very it was very neat because at the same time like when you read that it's like oh we're telling you that this stuff is historical we're also telling you that it's complete bs so they're (laughs) they're letting themselves off the hook uh, at the same time, they're like building this rich story, which is very meta, right? Yeah. Well, I think yeah, too very... that the other end of it is I think, and I get that, like Typhoon Lagoon had it at the same era, and that's not a coincidence. But I also don't think Disney was just going to make a bar district without something creative attached to it. Like they weren't just going to go, yeah, let's open up four bars and it's on an island as a ticketed event. I mean, they like they always seem like they always have to raise the bar, or go a little bit above and beyond. So. It, right, right. And and I think this is, you know, I don't know if it's worthy of discussion in this forum. Uh, you know, I, I think all of this story is great. And this is a very personal opinion. So, you know, everybody feel free, ju- jump on your, jump in on your opinions, you know, listeners, you know, send in your opinions too. You know, I, I have a mind, um, remember when, um, what are the corporate statements that everybody likes to make? The, uh, Sort of like the corporate vision statements. What are those called? Mission statement. Mission statement. So like, so like corporations got into this big thing of doing mission statements and they would take their mission statements and then they would very often put them up in a customer facing area. And I think mission statements are great on a corporate level to kind of give you, you know, internally an idea of what you're all striving for. But if you're doing that, if you're actually striving to to fulfill your mission, you don't need to tell your customer what the mission is because they're going to, to like be fulfilled by you, you know, doing that mission. Um, in the same way, I wonder, you know, I, I think doing this exercise of, of coming up with the reasons for all of these things you know, is important to be able to figure out, okay, how do we fit this into the story? You know, why do we need this kind of building? Why does this building look like this? You know, it, it could be a great, you know, design, uh, document, but I don't know if you need to tell people about it, you know, and in the end, if Pleasure Island is successful or not successful, it's not going to be because of the story. It's going to be because people went to the clubs and they drank like fishes and enjoyed themselves and came back again. You know, they, I would say there were probably, you know, a very small percentage of people like myself that were attracted by this, but you know, 95%, you know, couldn't care less about the story. And it was just, did I have a good time or did I not have a good time? You want to know why I went for the first time? For the plex. Sure. The, <laughs> yeah, I couldn't wait. You know, I, I'm always one of the family. He's going to tick them off a checklist. I, I always stop the car and look at those plaques on the side of the road. But no, it's so in, in college, um, before I had gone to Pleasure Island for the first time, my roommate, uh, sophomore, junior, I forget, he had this this plush 
frog that he bought into the room. And I said, Steve, where'd you get that? He goes, oh, this frog, his name is Lenny. I said, what do you mean it's Lenny? And he gave it this name. He's like, I see the bee on his mouth. That's the bee, the magic Lenny and the magic bee. And I'm like, okay, where, I don't know where this is going, right? I need well, a new roommate. Out. That's where that's going. <laughs> no, he was he was the best roommate. He was All right, great. good. We're, we still keep in touch. So, uh, so he says, you know, Lenny and the Magic Bee. And so he proceeds to tell me the story. And he and his brothers and some friends were down at Pleasure Island playing the Whack a Frog game, where you know where you pay the money and you whack the frog, and it goes into. Well, they won, and and they carried around Lenny through Pleasure Island that night, uh, and apparently on their on the flight home, uh, a B, the letter B fell off of the seat next to them. So they stuck it on his mouth. And, and to that day, uh, it was always Lenny and the magic B. So I actually, I, I'm going to get out here. I have a picture of Lenny and the magic B too. Oh, in our, in oh, our dorm room. So anyway, the reason, the reason I'm telling you this is that how it, it, it goes back to somebody telling me about it. And that's why we wanted to go there. Not, you know, we, we said, yes, we'll play the leapfrog game, but, um, you know, it, it it was a word of mouth thing. It wasn't like, oh, I want to go discover this story because that didn't carry over. As far as we concern, you know, we're concerned, we were going to have fun. So, right, absolutely. Well, Todd, I think you have the the burn bombs guide from the preview one, right? From Correct. before it opened. Yep. Would you do me the honor of reading what the uh, what burn bomb had to say about the uh, the island to sort of set the stage for our second half here? Absolutely. Hold on, I gotta get you guys. Gotta get. You gotta get you Lenny. I'll say while he's digging that up, you know, I, I wasn't of age, but it was always intriguing to me. Like it was somewhere at Disney I couldn't go. I wasn't allowed to go, but I was you'd see it. You could see, you know, the big the big buildings from over there. You're like, what is going on there that's in you know, at that age, you know, ten, twelve years old, you had no idea what was going on there really, you know, drinking and that, but it was like I really want to go check that out, but you know, we never really went over there because it was like, ah, oh, that's where people go at night to, you know, go have parties and stuff like that. That was it. And I didn't know the theming, but I saw Jessica Rabbit and I saw the, you know, the signs. It just it looked like a lot of fun. It looked cool. Oh, and the spotlights. Do you remember the spotlights that would light up the sky there? Yeah, for, and they, you know, it was always on years? the Disney TV. It's it's New Year's every night. And I, as a kid, you know, New Year's is a lot of fun. We have like, I can do that every and, night. I'm, yeah, I'm it, there. It just sounded really cool. Like I was like, wow, as a kid, that was great. You know, as a preteen. Yeah. And what a what is amazing is like it did not open with that. Right. <laughs> that that did not exist. We that need to keep people here <laughs> for the first for the first months that Pleasure Island was open. I think part of the ahead of Todd reading what is essentially a PR release. I I think that it's part of that critical era where they were a golden organization where it seemed like everything they were touching was turning to gold and the press uh for for Eisner and Wells and for the company was not only are they doing all of these things, but whenever they do them, they do them better than anybody else, with more attention to detail than anybody else, uh, more spectacularly than anybody else, and they perfect it where others have tried. So when you're looking to get those articles written about, you know, Disney's opening up this nightclub compared to whatever Universal's doing, because they were open by that point, and compared to Church Street Station where people were going off property or boardwalk and baseball later and things like that. Anytime Dis Disney wanted those, I feel like Imagineering and the leadership leaned into that uh, when they started getting into these, we'll write a nine-page document about the history of these buildings that literally no one has any history with. 
and no one cares, but we're going to do it anyway to show our attention to detail so that when the national press is writing all their articles on us opening up this nightclub area, there's three paragraphs on the lengths that Disney went to to make it exceptional beyond compare. And that's that's really why I think they did those things. Not because that, anybody cares when they walk into New Fantasyland that the glass in the windows was imported from Germany. Uh, <laughs> like from, this is a true story, by the way. Like that's this thing they actually did. They went and got these like, special glass made for the windows on Bell's Castle. Or, nobody cares. I mean, nobody's walking <laughs> But they want to be able, when they give that interview, to tell you that, hey, we've look what we've done. So what did they do? Or what, This is what they were going to do, right, Hal? Yes. This All right. Is... So settle in here. We'll read the few paragraphs here. Beside the Empress Lily at the Disney Village Marketplace, a new island has been formed in the Buena Vista Lagoon. Here, visitors will find the remnants of a 19th century shipbuilding empire, including the once lavish residence of its former owner, Pittsburgh entrepreneur Meriwether Adam Pleasure. Natives of these parts say the place went to ruin during the 1950s when Disney Imagineers came to its rescue, restoring the six-acre waterfront as an attraction devoted to nighttime diversions. Visitors can enjoy a variety of nightlife activities, dancing, hot jazz, cool comedy. The multi-million dollar complex caters to adults and older children with six themed nightclubs, imaginative shops, and food outlets, all set in a lively atmosphere of street performances, fireworks displays, and water shows. Old Meriwether Adam would have hardly recognized his former haunts. There's the Adventurers Club, an eerie place of gypsies and ghosts, where a certain Miss Zenobia tells the st- tales and fortunes to those of the Ill- at the Illusions Bar. Masks and shrunken heads festoon the walls, and organ plays by itself in the library salon. If the adventurer's atmosphere sounds too tame, visitors can head to the Zephyr Rock and Roller Dome, a lounge and dance floor circled by a roller skating rink. At Mannequins, the dance floor revolves. What remains are still our platforms on which the mannequin fashion figures are set. If dancing like Dervish is not your thing, live, yeah. live entertainment options include the Comedy Warehouse and Neon Armadillo. For kids, there's a non-alcoholic diversion, Videoopolis Dance Club, a high-tech video nightclub featuring rock videos and resounding stereo. Guests who have been to Disneyland will recognize this spot. Eating is a mainly splendid affair on Pleasure Island. The fireworks factory serves authentic American barbecue family style. The Zephyr Grill serves custom burgers. Foods from around the world are featured at Meriwether's Food Fair. Sweet Surrender takes care of folks in need of a banana split fix. And at Mr. Pleasure's former residence, the Portobello Yacht Club, now restored to its grandeur, the whole family can enjoy offerings of northern Italian dishes and fresh seafood. Pleasure Island's restaurants and shops are open during operative Disney Market Village Place hours. Nightclubs open early in the evening and don't close until early morning. And it's slated that it's opening during the summer of 1989. Yeah. So what year was that um, Was that one from? This is the 1990, I'm sorry, 1989 Birnbaum. So this was probably written in 88 at some point. Yeah. So, I mean, what's amazing there is like some of that stuff did not happen. No. <laughs> like there it is that close to to opening and like some of the things that you mentioned just didn't didn't end up making it. Um, so let's take a quick tour yeah. of the opening day club shops and restaurants. And then I'll give you a brief glimpse of the stories behind them. Uh, um, anybody who's not 21 or older has to turn the podcast off now, right? Like, yeah. So actually, it depends Brian, on what time they're listening to this. If it's in the morning, <laughs> it's okay. But if it's after seven p.m., they do have to leave the room. It's a hard ticket. So event. actually, yeah. 
actually, Brian, you let you let me segue into something then. So when when the island first opened, it was intended to be uh, something that was accessible to families. Uh, there were a few of the clubs that were not that were strictly twenty one and over, uh, mainly mannequins. But really, the rest of the clubs on the island were intended to be, uh, they were accessible for, for families with kids, too. Um, that really isn't what the public wanted, which is why it ended up changing relatively quickly. But it was, kids were able to be there um, from on opening day. I can tell you, mom and dad's date night out on the one night on vacation, they get to go away with grandma and grandpa watching the kids. They don't want to bring the kids with them to pleasure. No. <laughs> and no yeah. kid wants to go to a comedy bar or an adventures club. The, that is really that part of the that line, you know, uh, that Disney had a trot here of, you know, what's what does it mean to be having a nightclub? You know, it, it's a very, again, it's we know the Magic Kingdom and, you know, it's a very family-oriented trip. So where is that line of what you can say and what you cannot say? Well, and, and, you know, and it's kind of new territory for them, isn't it? Uh, oh, absolutely. You know, it's the first time they're designing something without necessarily intending some of it for for families. Well, you know, <clears throat> what was the closest thing prior? I mean, to the, you know, Saltwater Express playing some music in a, in a, in a lounge. I mean, there really is nothing <laughs> yeah. else, right? I, I mean, had, yeah, like a World Showcase, I mean, had, too. And that's, I mean, that was like the first, what, alcohol really in a Disney theme Yeah, but park. see, Beer Garden, you know, all those shows, they were still open. To, they were yeah, still family-oriented. Yeah, nine. You know, it was done right. like you had top of the world i mean but kids would still get up and dance i mean joy to the it. world wasn't controversial you know that was i'll play <laughs> on a loop up there so and i forget when we did talked about top of the world in our restaurant episode I, I i feel like there was an age restriction in the top of the world show maybe the, like a later one or something but I could be wrong about. It. I kn- I know the New Year's Eve stuff. There always was like the yeah. Actually, I I know for one of our one of our listeners wrote a little. I saw. I don't know if they were writing us or they're just talking about it on Twitter. But she was a young lady, and she remembers attending. Um, gosh, I can't remember who the who the person was, but she remembers seeing like a singer and a comedian. Oh, actually, on New Year's Eve, I think uh, at the top of the world, and okay. she would have been young at that point. So, yeah, I I don't think. Uh, I think if you went to go see Sherry Lewis, that was fine. If you're Kreskin, you could be a kid and that was okay. There you go. As long as you paid your $7 or whatever. Um, all right. So let's get into a little bit of uh, Pleasure's Island, Pleasure Island. And I'll, I'll start with kind of the Cliff Note story version of the, of the island story, which was on a plaque at its entrance. And it said, Pleasure Island, founded in 1911. An unverifiable, anecdotal, purely subjective, theoretical, alleged purported history. Also, ersatz. Did I say that right? Is that the way you pronounce that? Ersatz? Ersatz. Yes, thank you. Also, ersatz. A living monument to the wise fool, the mad visionary, the scoundrel, the scallywag, and seeker of enjoyment, Meriwether Adam Pleasure, who purchased the island in 1911. Pleasure's profitable canvas manufacturing sale-fabricating empire, founded on this site, provided him with the capital to indulge his lifelong interest in the exotic, the experimental, and the unexplainable. Known as the Grand Funmeister, Pleasure disappeared during his 1941 circumnavigation of the Antarctic. His sons, Henry and Stuart, took over the island in Pleasure Enterprises. Their mismanagement led to bankruptcy in 1955. Hurricane Connie hit that same year, and Pleasure Island was abandoned. 
1987, archaeologists uncovered the site and its remains, and a large-scale reclamation project was begun. In 1989, the new Pleasure Island was reopened and dedicated to the legacy of Meriwether and Pleasure. Fun for all, and all for fun. So, can you, ima- <laughs> can so, you imagine... It's <laughs> like, a lot to read. Now, is that before you go in or right after? I mean, that's, that's... Yeah. That's before you've had a drink, fortunately. Just, hold, that... hold up, hold up. I gotta read this. <laughs> Let's just be glad his name was Pleasure. If it was like Gloom or something, this would be terrible. Totally right? different. Totally, <laughs> totally different. different island. Totally different. So, haunted so can islands. you? And of course, one of the funny things about Pleasure Island is that was actually in Pinocchio. Yeah, I was, was going to mention place. that earlier. Yeah, it was. Yeah, Island. was that was the where the uh, the the little boy the, the cigar smoking kids. guys were. Yeah, there. yeah, yeah. They would yeah. send the boys there and then turn them into donkeys later on. <laughs> so that was always a fun thing of like, why would they name it that? But. I don't know. Maybe maybe we'll get to talk to someone that will explain that to us because that always seemed like a. Uh, and I, I also, like the word pleasure, it, it's it's just it just connotates some odd things too. <laughs> I was and fine I, I with don't, the name. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know. It just it. I don't. I don't feel that it rings as family friendly or this place you. I don't know. It's just me. This is what I will say, Todd. There's a plaque for that, Todd. Yeah, okay, I'll read it. It's why because because we haven't had a chance to you know talk to the folks and confirm these stories. I'm gonna go back to Rosie O'Grady's. You know, Rosie O'Grady's wasn't just Rosie O'Grady's; it was Rosie O'Grady's Good Time Emporium. So when you saw the name, it it was somewhat even though you didn't know who wrote. You saw the good time part of it, and it was very evocative. Like you're going to have fun when you come here. And so I think they were looking for something in the name that did the same thing. I don't know what this place is, but it looks like I'm supposed to have fun here because I see the word pleasure right there in the name. It, we're going to make it really clear to you. Right. Exa- exactly. It is, you, and to an extent, you have you have to telegraph what's... I, this is another like side trip. So like... This is another thing where I think Disney has kind of shot itself in the foot over the course of time, and particularly in this, you know, in this location. Um, you know, we, we talk about the weenie and and all these things that Disney got very good at of learning to draw you into, into things. You know, um, one of the problems that still happens, I think, within, you know, the remnants of Pleasure Island today in, in downtown Disney you know, because they are going for this idea of uh, of a reclaimed area that has changed over time, uh, unless you telegraph very good, like what is on the inside of the building, like people don't, there are some people that, yes, they read all the guidebooks and they know exactly what something is. They read the burn bombs before they come in. But there are an awful lot of people that just show up someplace and walk around. And if your building doesn't look like the thing that's inside of it, it's not very attractive and it's very confusing and you're not going to get a lot of business, you know, it, and that's, that's one of the problems that Pleasure Island, I think in, in some ways had and, and why they tried to solve it with the name, you know, like if you walk by, you know, today at, Ple- at today at downtown Disney, or I should what do they call it? Disney, Disney Springs. Springs. Today at Disney Springs. So you go to Disney Springs, you know, there is like the, a restaurant, an Italian restaurant that is built into something that looks like and so it's an airport, yeah. a, an airport terminal yeah. or, and you don't know, like that looks like an airport terminal. Right. It doesn't scream. I'm an Italian restaurant. 
that that those, that whole little area is confusing. I think still, even with the names, like there's the Enzo's and Enzo's Hideaway and that. So it's, I think that if it looks like an abandoned building, like a Pleasure Island was supposed to look like, kind of like the 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 normal human instinct isn't to walk into that abandoned building. Like you're just not. Hey, that looks like a place to party. You know, it's just like I don't know what's in there. What's that one that has the neon lights on it? I'm going to go to that one. Exactly. So you know, tunics and. You know, this was a problem that we saw in in the past with the timekeeper at at the Magic Kingdom. It's like you saw this thing that said Metropolis Science Center and there was a sign kind of stuffed in the back that said timekeeper. But like, you don't know. You thought it was just a walking store by, you or something. There's... Yeah. And, and that's why they end up, up there. That's where you're Right. Going. And that's why they end Exactly. So you see, you know, like the rocket jets. It's like there are rocket jets there. Well, I don't want to go you to know? a science center. I want to do a ride. <laughs> right. And, and they end up having to put like a placard outside. And a cast member. That, that try, a cast that tries member to waving explain, people in. Right. It tries to explain what it is. So, you know, this is a real factor that you have to overcome, you know, as as a designer of of entertainment spaces is like, how do you let people know, you know, what's on the inside of the building while they're looking at the outside? It was like, I, I almost, think that's go ahead, Todd. I was gonna say, I think I think that's a an interesting challenge alone as you're talking about it, how. But when you're trying to convey the story that these buildings were doing something else and then have been converted into what you're here for. Right. That makes it even harder because you then have to take a factory facade and say that something is cool and going on inside here. Now, I will say one, we've referenced this place before. One place in particular that did that really, really well was down in Baltimore when the power, uh, what was it called? The power, power plant. plant. The power, the power plant Flags or whatever. Power six, plant. Yeah. yeah, Six Flags. When that opened, the building was cool, but the way the sign was, it lured you in, right? You knew that something different was going on there. It wasn't just a standard brick building. So I'm just trying, now in this sense, they built the buildings to look like something and then had to adapt them. So they had the complete control to bring it in, but it's not, it's not easy. It is very, it is very difficult. And I, again, a lot of the time we're talking about them walking a fine line. And so, you know, I, I think it, we can judge, you know, perhaps looking back whether some places were more successful than others. And in fact, we, we did see um, things like the Adventurers Club when it opened had a very normal facade with a very tiny sign that said the Adventurers Club. And within a very short amount of time, suddenly there was like a piece of an airplane part and, you know, skulls <laughs> on on flaming uh, spears and pieces of a mummy and things placed outside of the Adventurers Club which telegraphed more of what was on the inside. Um, so there was an effort to do some some redevelopment and some reimagining very quickly because it, it wasn't really doing the job it was supposed to. Um, they had a they had the theme too of like this is I always look at things now it's like almost I feel like every Disneyland that's made from this era on is it's d- intentionally distressed so they can do less maintenance the more distressed it gets worn down the better it looks and that's kind of how this place plays in my brain is like you know it was once this well now we're going to convert it from an abandoned factory well yeah why is that so gross and dirty well it's an abandoned factory that's that's very simple but <laughs> i mean that's you go through star wars land everywhere it all looks old well i was i was going to say look at everything that they've done including storybook circus has yep. fake rust look yep. at batu same thing that has been the theme here for the a while entire, now. The entire animal kingdom. Entire yeah. animal Easy kingdom. maintenance. It's just, it's, yeah. Right. It's rusting. Cracked it's cement is fine. So <laughs> I think that the if you really look at Epcot and, and, and you know Magic Kingdom as just these pink pathway places, right? There's very few spots that draw you into that 
uh, transportation to a different land. Um, but I think we're we're on a tangent, but we always do. No, so it's it's like it's a, a pl- great. But Pleasure Island is like that. We're we're going with this like you're supposed to go in and, and wander and read the placards and, and wander into a place and, and you know, follow the story I thought story I was supposed line. to just get a drink. That's the thing. That's what you, you <laughs> That's kinda, what it became. Like, I think they, they it, you know, we're going deep, but I think they almost took it a smidge <laughs> too far. To, to Well, you know, it begs the question, could they have done something differently during the day, too? Because it was just shuttered during the day, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, more in, in part two. But could those places have been turned into different types of entertainment complexes? Not not like a Dave and Buster's, but I'm saying something that could go on during the day to entertain and, and give that exploratory feel to the area and interactivity and things like that. And that never materialized. It really was just the place to go later on when... When, yeah, the shops were open, but that was yeah. But that was really there was a handful yeah. of them. After you just walk, what's oh, here? Oh, so, yeah, that's a club. That's closed. The doors are closed. Yeah. The doors are closed. <laughs> Look, little confetti from last night. Okay, moving along. Nothing to see here. Nothing to see here. <laughs> All right, so let's let's go a little into each one of the complexes or the buildings. So first of all, was the Empress Lily. Now, due to the proximity to the, to the Empress Lily to Pleasure Island, the restaurant complex was actually opened up in 1977, as Brian said. Uh, as an addition to Lake Bonavista Shopping Village, was retconned into the Pleasure Island story with the idea that Pleasure purchased the boat in 1911 and used it as a houseboat while the his uh, while Pleasure Island, you know, his uh, living compound was under construction. Then there was a restaurant uh, called the Portobello Yacht Club, uh, which was an Italian restaurant operated by the Levy Restaurants. Uh, that was supposed to be the former home of the Pleasures, who had occupied it for 20 years. Uh, now, the restaurant was on the boundary of the property, so that meant that it was actually accessible without having a ticket to Pleasure Island. So it became another eatery uh, that you could visit while uh, while you were there. And I never got a chance to eat there, but Brian, I understand that <clears throat> one of your relatives my did. Sis- my sister and her family ate there. She, um, I remember when we took her kids for the first time, I, I must have come down on a separate flight or something and met up with them later but they had gotten there early and gone to uh at that time was downtown disney and she's like oh we had dinner at the portobello yacht club and it was really good and it was very weird back then for somebody to go someplace i'd never been because on all those trips i'd i'd you know you get to a point where you've pretty much eaten in most every place except places you don't want to eat in uh when you go enough and uh but she she had good things to say about her meal there she enjoyed it it was typical italian you know Higher end, uh, medium to higher end Italian cuisine. Right. I'm looking. I'm looking at one of the um, the menus now. So they had things like, you know, all kinds of different pizzas for uh, for an appetizers. Of course, calamari, you know, shrimp with prosciutto, uh, lobster salads, uh, filet mignon. So steaks as a main course, um, but also rack of lamb, um, some seafood. So grouper, chicken. So really, just kind of a a pretty wide uh, swath yeah, of things. A continental restaurant with kind of an Italian theming, I would say. Sure. You know, lobster ravioli and, you know, spaghetti. A good wine selection, of course. Um, and what I just found out um, from from one of our listeners, uh, this is really interesting. So um, this is from uh, WW, WDW Manimal. Who is oh believe, Alan Bowers, our buddy Alan, Alan Bowers, Bowers. Another yeah. another Bowers, not related. Yes, um, only he, in your heart, only in your heart. Yes, it, your that's right. right. We are spiritually related. Um, he told me uh, 
he, he sent me a piece of a book about Jim Henson's life and actually the deal to uh, to sell the Muppets to Disney was actually brokered at the Portobello Yacht Club in 1990. Well, then there should have been a plaque out front that <laughs> said sh- that. Should have been a plaque out front, for sure. Um, so that's Portobello Yacht Club. Um, next to that was another restaurant called the Fireworks Factory, also run by the Levy Re- Restaurant Corporation, uh, focusing on barbecue, as Todd mentioned. And this was supposedly built from the remains of Pleasure's Fireworks Factory and Laboratory, which was partially destroyed in 1927 when a spark from Pleasure's pipe set off the fireworks that were stored there. And what's interesting is that the interior design of the restaurant actually supported that story. So there were all these kind of like half brick walls where like the tops were blown away or sections were taken out of it. Um, And then they would have things like strings of rockets, like hanging downs and firework label styled posters. Um, We should probably add into this is the start of the themed restaurant fad era too right mm. your your rainforest cafes i mean hard rock was already going hard rock and, rainforest hard rock was really the original yeah you had but rainforest and um uh, planet hollywood planet all-star hollywood, cafe right then you got t-rex there was a, a couple other ones in there that oh, david uh, david copperfield's magic underground uh, <laughs> there were there were a few others that that went belly up or only had a few locations but that was a big thing was creating these there were a number out there that were trying to do the steaming and and they were doing even more a more complex story. Um, yeah. I even remember they were such the rage that I I had this place. I wanted to build one called Bombs Away, which was like you know the wing was a the bar was a wing of an airplane, and there's the parachuters coming through the ceiling. Yeah, and you had them around park. the country too. Spaghetti but, Factory. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm I'm what's the well Outback? I mean Outback Steakhouse is a is is didn't have as much of the flair but that you know the australian theming and everything on the or menu texas is, texas roadhouse we texas throw the peanuts roadhouse. on the floor yeah. and we dance like yeah. all right all right fine but but you've that, had a dance at texas roadhouse oh my uh, you never see them dance so no. if, if there's like a Haven't birthday there years. uh there's like a whole yeah. routine that they do they drag know. out a saddle and make the birthday person sit oh on. my god oh yeah have, it's, have, it's have you ever Chi-chi's? been there with- Wait, I haven't wait. Been, uh, been there in years. JT, I have to ask, have you ever been to Texas Roadhouse when the armadillo comes out and does meet and greets in the full costume? Like, No, I've just eaten there a couple times. Yeah. Never is seen any of this stuff. Is like that the, the armad- holiday armadillo? I'm the holiday armadillo! <laughs> the guy's in a, you know, in a western like, outfit. Now, now, leave me alone and let me enjoy it myself, but but I love a themed restaurant. These are so fun to me. That's, this is great. Yeah, like Chi-Chi's. I, used to, I didn't like the singing. It's a celebration still. of food, Chi-Chi's. Yeah. That I think you really would have liked this, JT, and I'm sorry yeah, that you, you missed out. Sounds great. I'm looking at pictures now. Yeah. So its signature drink was the 21 Rum Salute, which was a 21-ounce hurricane. That's so fun. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Wait, is there any mixer? You know, in a hurricane, you got passion fruit juice, so there's a little bit of a mixer. Yeah, a little bit of a mixer, but probably an awful, an awful lot of rum. And, and I will say, overall, the drinks at Pleasure Island kind of stank. I mean, it was... <laughs> I it guess was I, I was giving them too much credit because there's not that much. This this probably came from a mix, really. Yeah, it it was the 1990s. So the the menu across the board, and certainly people I know have very fond memories of this, and they will disagree with me, and and I'm probably kind of a drink snob, but I would say overall kind of? the drink you are well, okay. Very I mean, much it's so. like it's like asking a sommelier what what bottle of wine should I get at the at the at the corner store, you know? <laughs> well, 
you know, <laughs> well, there are there are good bottles of wine at the corner store. I'm sure there are. Yeah. But how? But, uh, to, to the point of the, the the restaurants at that point, it's also that was the mid '90s were the era of syrupy, gross colored drinks and and sugary alcoholic beverages. It was it. It was very part and parcel of the drink scene at that time. I, you were a hundred percent right, Todd. It was exactly what was going on. Everywhere in America. Yeah. You went to TGI point. Fridays. There was some hot red drink right. on the cover. And that, and that's the progression. And really, Disney was kind of at the beginning of it because, as we've talked in some prior episodes about, TGI Fridays was the one that started the whole you know, the, the frozen drinks at, at chain restaurants and not just at, you know, fruity resorts on, on, on the beach somewhere and appetizers and things. That, but Captain Jack's. You know, that strawberry daiquiri was a yep. big deal. And strawberry daiquiris were, were like became a big thing in the early 80s at, at restaurants everywhere. Frozen strawberry daiquiris. Bennigan's in the ground round. The ground round. Yeah, the, the ground, ground round. round. And Bennigan's. Oh. Did they show up to your table? Did this drink have the sparkler in it or was that something else? Yes, that is it exactly. That's so So you fun. actually found, you found a photo of that? Yeah, it's it's very small. Somebody. Oh, fantastic! Walt yes, they would world. show up with sparklers in it. I know. I'm like, I never ordered it. The next time we eat with JT, I'm absolutely bringing a sparkler to. Put absolutely, in this drink. but it's got <laughs> to match do the that theme for... of the restaurant. This is so cool because it's fireworks. They got the. They probably had a box of fireworks in the back. They just making drinks with. If it had 21 rums, how did that sparkler not set it on fire? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it, rum. Had, it had 21 ounces, not 21 rums. All right. 21 rooms would have been fascinating. Yeah, that would have yeah. been great. Yeah, Brian, are you ch- uh, Brian's rifling through paper. I believe he's checking with the fire marshal for Retro Magic 50 <laughs> if we can serve drinks with sparklers. Like, or there's another there's another fireworks uh, uh, factory brochure here. I have it. It's got like the black cat on it, you know, the black cat fireworks. It's like very clever. I like that yeah, stuff. Yeah, very good. Um, now, the name of the restaurant is actually taken from an abandoned shooting gallery that... Um, idea that tony baxter proposed for discovery bay at disneyland so if you find the old artwork there's this thing called the fireworks factory and the idea was like as you shot the you know your electronic bb guns that would like set off fireworks on the side so the name is a carryover from discovery Island. i have a write-up here i found if you want me to read it about the fireworks factory it says have a yes. blast of a time at the fireworks factory the Fireworks Factory offers a menu of great American barbecue and smoked specialties, fresh seafood, select steaks. Our high-energy bar features explosive drinks, including the American micro-brewed beers, select wines, and expertly blended specialty drinks with a bang. There you go. Um, now, I did get to eat there several times. I, I did genuinely enjoy the barbecue, and it was... I know this is sounding stupid. It was the first place I ever had, like, steamed... Uh, um uh squash like summer squash okay which i found delicious and right. i still love it today but that was that was my first exposure to steam squash and i think at some point i was like what is this how do you make this so listeners i want everybody to write in and explain when the first time that you had your first exposure to steam squash yeah, <laughs> was it a family picnic it's, was it a memorable it's funny birthday? he mentions that because i you know my vegetable memory with disney is driving the first time with my friends uh, you know, 1995, driving I-95 for a thousand miles. And we stopped for dinner in the Carolinas at a Denny's. And one of the side dishes offered was fried okra. I had never heard of okra. I had oh, never st- eaten it before. I had eaten gumbo, but I didn't know that was the vegetable in it. Uh, and I ordered fried okra with, with, with my dinner. And I'm like, it's good oh, stuff. this is pretty good. 
I just made gumbo tonight, so that's very timeful. Well, there you go. So that. that was a Disney trip where I where I got fried okra for the first time. I'll say the fireworks factory has a very MGM Studios look to it, like the Backlot Express. It's like that corrugated steel walls, and it's it's uh, that's that's the look it has. But it does say open uh, eleven thirty to four for lunch and four to two for dinner. There you go. Now stroll in there at one fifty. <laughs> I'd like the uh, <laughs> porterhouse. I mean the steamed whatever. <laughs> Can I get some lobster? Uh, let's see. Actually, I have the menu from them too. They have the dynamite barbecue platter. I have one here. How? Okay. Uh, Cajun shrimp pasta, grilled pork chops, ribeye steak, smoked chicken, uh, Pacific Northwest crab, Dungeonese crab. Is that semi-saying? Dungeness. Dungeness. Excuse me. Um, Florida shrimp cocktail for Brian. Chilled rock shrimp with tropical salsa. Oh, delightful. (laughs) It's the 90s. It has salsa. Yeah. Salsa. Salsa. Now, to me, the most fascinating part of of this was actually the men's restroom. What they themed it? <laughs> well, here's here's the thing. So, if you're going to tell me sparklers went off in the urinals, I'm going to be really upset. <laughs> no, you put a, so you, you, you. So I have. I will say I have never been as terrified by a men's room oh. as I was <laughs> when I first. Entered the restroom there. Is this before or after it. the 21 rum salute? That's yeah, I, I, Because I have been in some seedy restrooms in my life. How has led a sheltered life if Pleasure so, Island was the scariest restroom he's ever been in? Steam squash and scary bathrooms. Yeah. So, so here's the deal. So you walk into the men's room and I, you step up to the urinal and you're looking out like onto the bar and there's like on right on the you're like looking through a glass window and right on the other side of the glass window is like a a you know like a 12 inch bar with seats and people sitting there drinking can you see can they see in well that's the thing it's like i freaked out because i thought they could see me because i seemed it was just so i like zipped up and (laughs) went went outside went outside and looked and i realized it was a um it was a, um, what do they call that? Two way mirror. Magic? It was a two way mirror. mirror. Yeah. So on the outside, it just looked like a mirror. And then on the inside, you could look out. And I was like, whew. Like 1989. Like stall number two, please. Yeah. Stall number yeah. two. And I guess, <laughs> and I guess the mirror. idea, yeah, I guess the idea was that you could leave, you know, like say you met somebody, you could like have them sit there and then you could go into the restroom. And while you're peeing, you could listen to them talking and seeing, you know, how the date was going. Or you make sure your date doesn't leave. Hey, I got to go to the restroom. I'll be right, right back. Exactly. You go in. Oh, no. <laughs> Come back. Well, and, and apparently this was a concept that was originally floated for the for the comedy club. And they didn't like it there. But they ended up putting it in the fireworks factory. That's so great. It was real. I mean, honestly, it's so brilliant. I can't believe it never got used anywhere else again. Um, yeah, that was that was really something. So. Yeah. <laughs> I feel really bad for uh, people that have uh, a shy bladder uh, you know, <laughs> where you it need some be, privacy. It'd be very challenging. What's in the fireworks factory now? Is it still there? That building? Um, I mean, so much of it was totally knocked down. Yeah, the whole the island was reshaped. So. Some of the buildings they did retain, but... Yeah, so like Paradiso 37 and the Edison and Maria Enzo's, that they kind of kept the building and redid it. But they completely knocked down 
the comedy warehouse. I remember being down there during construction. Basically, that whole backside from right after Adventures Club all the way out to Empress Lily was just just cut off from the water and flattened. There was nothing left. Essentially, Fireworks Factory is is where the uh, the boathouse. The entrance was basically where a little bit in front of where that um, turnaround is for the for the aqua cars. That's that's where the, that's where the entrance was. All right, so uh, so that's it for uh, where did we end? I think so. That's it for the fireworks factory. So we'll move over to Meriwether's Market. Now, this facility, which served as a food court when the island opened, was the original sail making factory on the island. Um, the food court was inside the boundaries of the island, so it was relatively short-lived, and it later became the Pleasure Island Jazz Company, and today its superstructure houses uh, Raglan Road. So it's, the building still looks kind of the same, at least from the aerial view, uh, but you know, on the street level, it's quite different. Um, Mannequin's Dance Palace. Um, this multi-story dance club had a ridiculously layered story to support the theme of the club which featured theatrical style flying backdrops along with brightly dressed mannequins hanging from the rafters. Did you guys ever go into mannequins? I did go in there in 98. Um, it was crazy. <laughs> it was, so, you'd, you know, you would walk. I remember like down the staircases because it was multi-level and like multi-level, suddenly there'd, yeah. there'd be this mannequin like on the side kind of lit up. I remember one was like a, like a sequined like Peter Pan theme and there was like a Captain Hook and a Peter like mm-hmm. it was kind of creepy like <laughs> yeah no it definitely was if you, if you don't like that um the uh yeah it was it was I don't know I, I mean I think we spent more time at the beach the beach club that's where we went okay um so uh the facility was supposedly Pleasure's second sail making factory which was then converted into a motion picture studio which it had, why it had the theatrical rigging and the costumes. And then it became a workshop for Maxwell's Demon, which was a steam and magnetic powered locomotive. And that was the explanation for why the dance club had a revolving turntable floor. (laughs) So it's like they had to go three levels deep on the explanation of, okay, it's a large building big enough to make sales. But it also became a movie studio, which is why it has these costumes and stuff in it. But then it also has a turntable. Like, it's just overly ridiculous, I think, of, of you know, by the time you get those many layers deep. Um, it was a very cool experience, though. It, it, it was a 21, up and in, 21 and up dance club. Um, what was really, I thought what was really neat about it was the entrance experience. So you would walk up to the front and it was an elevator. That would take you up to, I think, the second floor, maybe the third. And, you know, you kind of hear that that muffled sound of, you know, of the dance music outside. And then when the elevator doors opened up, it's like the full blast hit you of the music that was playing. And you would come in behind the DJs. And they had a very advanced DJ setup at the time. Um they spent a whole lot of money on the lighting system and the sound system. It was all state of the art. And then you would kind of move around the, the cage DJ area, which was above the dance floor uh, to find you either go down and, and get a drink at the bar. But the result, the revolving dance floor was a ton of fun because you could just sit there and watch people um, 
as as they were trying to get off the floor, especially if they had a few drinks, like completely <laughs> fall, <laughs> like trying Just to getting make that on transition. the floor might be tough too. Yeah, <laughs> trying to make the transition from the revolving dance floor to like the still dance floor. Todd, Todd, um, Todd and I are both looking at this photo that was that was put into the chat here, trying to figure out what kind of computers they're using to run this. this oh yeah, sound, <laughs> soundboard and lighting. <laughs> I'm sure. For, for you know 1989 it was look at the monitors man yeah it's, probably uh, an yeah. amiga or something like that yep mm-hmm. I, I will say the the attraction for me was the revolving dance floor that was a lot of fun yeah and they would also do sh- uh, the dancers so there was this dance group called the pleasure island explosion uh that would uh do stuff outside but they would also come into mannequins and above the dance floor on the second level kind of uh in the back where you you see like sort of the backdrop stuff um they would come in and do dancing stuff like little mini shows uh up there while you were dancing down below so it was it was a really really innovative and really neat um cool cool place to go dancing for sure um so that was that was mannequins and today it's morimoto asia um this one is a favorite i think because it only lasted in this incarnation for a number of months so zephyr's rock and roller dome Um, (laughs) i love this so what's interesting i mean god there's so many interesting things about this one interesting thing is the preliminary version of this was spelled z-e-p-h-e-r apostrophe s yes. there are ver- there are versions of the it's spelled out zephyr with a pair of roller skates uh out in the wild like on some of the preliminary stuff that came out but in the end it was spelled x z f r and it had this very atomic logo on the side of the building which was white with kind of like an, an atom and zephyr inside the um inside the black lettering um this building contained a lounge a dance floor and a roller skating rink, <laughs> which circled the second floor, um, which was fascinating. But again, this was part of the idea of like having something for, for the younger set to do. So I guess while you were dancing or, you know, your kids could roller skate uh, around it. Um, I, I never got to do the roller skating, unfortunately, because the first time I went, we didn't go there. And by the time I had come back, it was closed. But like, what a wacky idea in, in hindsight. Like... <laughs> Nothing better than like roller skating and alcohol. Uh, I mean, I don't see how that could go wrong <laughs> at all. Um, so the idea in the story was that Pledger constructed Building X, which is what the building was called, as a place to design and test his experimental X thing aircraft. And the shape of the building was somewhat suggestive of a wind tunnel. Um, supposedly in the story after Pledger's test flight, an antenna on the roof transmission transmitted a message of welcome into space. So taking this a step further, the house band that played in the the dance section was called the Time Pilots. And the story was that they were a group of aliens who heard Pleasure's broadcasts from Earth, became fascinated by other radio broadcasts from the planet, and learned how to play our music. And then what they would do is why they were called the Time Pilots is they would each set, they would do a different decade. So the first set of the night would be from the 1950s. Then they would come do back and do a set of music from the 60s and then the 70s and then the 80s. So time. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very, very heady concept. 
Um, the the lounge area I remember going into a couple of times, and it was I thought it was very cool. It was very minimalist, white. They had a lot of posters from like nineteen uh, fifties science fiction movies in there. So you know, like uh, oh, the day the Earth stood still, and stuff like that. And then the one thing that was really interesting. So you know, remember when Pleasure Island opened up, smoking was still very prevalent in you know in bars and restaurants. They had a system installed in Pleasure Island, you know, in this in this bar that would actually suck the smoke up and get it out of your way. Um, wow. So if, if people were smoking in there, you didn't really notice it because it was immediately removed from the room, which made it a lot more enjoyable. So I, I don't know if there were other bars that utilized that system, but it was really remarkable how, you know, how you didn't have that fog of smoke in, in that particular lounge like you did in a lot of other places. Um, and I remember ordering electric lemonades in that particular bar. That was kind of... That sounds so 90s. The drink <laughs> So 90s electric It is. Now, now, there's still a drink called Dad's Electric Lemonade. Yeah, the 50s That is available Tune at Disney lounge. MGM. Yeah, so I'm curious whether it was, you know, a, a relative of or, or the same drink as they served back then. Okay. Uh, let's keep strolling through the island. Let me pull up my notes here. Sorry, this is where I kind of have stopped doing my pre-writing and I'm going to have to kind of wing it a little bit. Um, all right. Ah, um, this is fun. So underneath, <laughs> underneath Zephyr's Rock and Roller Dome uh, was a store called Doodles. And now, okay, so again, big entrances. So if you went to Zephyr's, you actually, and you still saw this when it became the Rock and Roll Beach Club later on, you would walk up to the front and then you would have to walk up three flights of stairs <laughs> in huh. order to get to the top. Do you remember that, Todd? Since you said you yes. like the Rock and Roll Beach Club. I remember that. It was all outside and you had to go all the way up this like, it was like a gangplank type staircase or almost, no, sorry, fire fire escape almost on the side. Yeah. So and, you had yeah. to trudge all the way up to the top in order to, so at the base of of that staircase was a very small shop called Doodles. And it, they sold like a lot of graphic tees and some Pleasure Island merchandise later on. But it was it was really just kind of like a, you know, a, a T-shirt shop. And the concept of that particular thing is that um, there was a uh, a um, a relative of Pleasure's, his granddaughter, Katie, who was a custom car builder. And um, that was her kind of like auto customization shop and her nickname was doodles and that's why the store was called doodles and on the inside there were like car parts and things integrated into the into the display systems so you saw like sort of like this machine shop um car kind of theme inside so it carried it through there um there was a um a custom clothing store or not a custom clothing there was a off the rack clothing store kind of reminded me a little bit of like white house black market because they had like one section of you know white clothes and one section of black clothes <laughs> um so i don't know if that was that store was it if white house black market was an inspiration for them or if it just kind of happened simultaneously the store was called changing attitudes and the idea there was that it was an upholstery shop um that uh was started by pleasure and um, they would actually do all of the yacht interiors, all the upholstery and things for that uh, into there. So the idea of the cloth 
you know, led to the clothing store. Um, and also within the, um, the fable of the island is that is where they stuffed the Akus who appeared inside of the Adventurers Club, which was this kind of yak moose hybrid <laughs> creature that was there. So I guess they um, couldn't get taxidermy done anywhere else. So uh, so they had it done there. <laughs> so they managed to tell you in two things with that. Um, then there was a um, little bit up Hill Street and actually Pleasure Island it was built on a hill, which was very different for Disney. They didn't have a lot of, you know, big changes of level, but you would actually kind of have to trudge up the street <laughs> at Pleasure Island as you got there. Um, there was a shop called Hammer and Fire, and it was a jewelry store. They had stoneware. They had some sort of like artsy craftsy stuff. Um, that was supposed to be the fittings foundry from Pleasure Island. So... Again, so things like, I guess, grommets and uh, oh, what are the things that you tie a boat off with? The cleats? The cleats, yes. So all, all of that stuff would have been made uh, in this factory. And the, the thing that I kind of remember about this place, they did this thing where they would actually have uh, people be like live mannequins in the glass windows out front. And that was really different and unique at the time. So you would walk by and you would see what looked like mannequins in the window. And then you realize like, oh, these are these are actual people. And that actually would draw a really big crowd. Um, it's like the red light district. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It, it, it was a big thing. I, I had forgotten about it. And I saw someone mention it. I was like, oh, my gosh, that's right. And like people would just stand in front of the window and stare at them. Um, it's a, kind of a big deal. Uh, on the other side of the street uh was the remains of the chandlery and tool crib tool crib um which was a store called yesteryears and that was kind of the first retro throwback sort of clothing store um that uh i don't know that kind of existed anywhere so you know they they had a lot of sort of like old disney themed t-shirts and clothes in there uh you know classic mickey um but but very unique and next door to that was uh a place called suspended animation and if you went to pleasure island at all i'm sure and were a disney fan especially you would remember this store um it had it was one of the only places in florida at disney where you could find cells and uh prince of imagineering work i ended up buying like a jungle cruise yeah print that, that's another 90s thing that was huge was was serious cells yeah yeah they really came out of nowhere so it was it was neat because they got a lot of the disney gallery stuff from california in there so it was one of the few places at that time especially that you could buy any kind of imagineering artwork um and it was it was a really neat store they um they had this statue kind of set up in the window of the um i don't know what it was done for originally but it it was kind of like a uh, Norman Rockwell uh, thing of like, was it Walt drawing Mickey or Mickey drawing Walt? But it was done as a statue. Oh, okay. Is, is, that, is was that the one in the Norman Rockwell style? Because I have the art. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, have, yeah, yeah. I have, I have it downstairs. And actually, I have a copy of that. And 
I'm going to do a giveaway because I've never framed it. I have no use for it. It's still rolled up. I probably bought it there. So here's here's a contest for this <laughs> month. Send your, what, what should we call it? What, uh, JT, what should the AOL keyword be for this one? Rockwell. There we are. So send an email with the subject Rockwell to contest at retrowdw.com to win the Norman Rockwell Walt painting Mickey Mickey painting Walt poster. There you go. Great way to let it go. So because it was a graphic store, uh, this was supposed to be uh, basically th- this is where like a, a R North Campaporter, America's premier gold leaf stylist, like came to Orlando and spent his days hand painting the bows of yachts that Pleasure Island refurbished. <laughs> so they tied the graphic, excuse me, they tied the, tried to try the graphics uh, into there too. Um, next to that was Avigator's Supply, um, which sold kind of like adventure style clothing. Uh, so like stuff for traveling, uh, you know, like, I don't know, things, things that you wear on safari. Um, they also had some logoed merchandise. Um, this was supposed to be a building that was made, uh, for refurbishing ships and yachts. Uh, and then it was tied in somewhat to the Adventurers Club, and there's this story about how he invited a group of native Floridian stunt pilots who were called the Avigators uh, to operate a import-export business out of there. And it had a really neat logo. It was kind of like this alligator with wings and props. Um, so that was painted on the side of the building. And there was a bunch of merchandise that was released at that time uh, that had the Avigators logo on it. And then you could also pick up some Adventurers Club merchandise there, too. Um, Videopolis East. We should talk about this. This is where Cage and Eight Tracks eventually ended up. Um, when it first opened up, um, you know, again, this is we're looking for places that kids can do things in Pleasure Island as well as adults. So this was actually an eighteen and under club, um, sort of based on the name of Videopolis from Disneyland. Um, in the story. Um, this was supposed to be where Meriwether Pleasure's son Henry, who was quote-unquote the mad genius of Lake Buena Vista, was setting up an artificial intelligence called the Pleasure Cellular Automation. And so inside of, of this club was a bunch of TVs that would play music videos, and it was they were just kind of attached by conduit and pipe all over the place, but this was supposed to be very computery and... Uh, <laughs> evocative of uh of i guess you know high-tech stuff uh i said uh they they said when the building was reopened in 1987 the automation was alive and thriving and it and it was the thing that was actually playing the videos that you were watching Hmm. so um so it was a kids dance club for a while um there were some neat special effects downstairs i remember is because it was again a multi-level club there were remember those um it's kind of like neon tubes from the opening of beginning of Spaceship Earth. Oh yeah, yeah. Like the crackles. It had some of that crackle stuff downstairs, so you could you got actually got to get up close and see it because you, know, you weren't like stuck in a car far away from it. <laughs> um, that uh, that particular dance palace did not la- or dance place did not last very long. Uh, allegedly, there were um, some uh, I don't I don't know how to put it. There, some 
uh, stabbings, I think, was the story that I'd heard, like, inside. There's some... Yeah, I, I tried to do some police blotter work on it. I could not come up with anything, but uh, yeah. I, yeah. I well, trust, you know. your, trust your memories of living local. Yeah, they you know, they pay to keep that out of the papers, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, really, I think it was probably just part of the overall, you know, redevelopment. Uh, but, but yes, that remind um, that reminds me of an ancient urban legend, uh, from the early days of like online message boards and stuff that no one ever dies on Disney property. That if like, a right. ge- that this story, remember the story was like, if a guest drops dead in the magic kingdom or while in one of the Disney hotels, they would force the ambulance to take them off property before declaring them <laughs> yep. dead. Like that, remember that SNL re- made a reference to it this weekend too. Did they really? Yeah, because they had Cuomo on, and Cuomo was talking about you know that they had Cuomo, but it was Cuomo in right. quotes about moving bodies <laughs> to hospitals from nursing homes from oh. New York, and he's like, "We're doing it like Disney does it. You know, yeah. they move them out of the theme park." Yeah, it's that, that, that that was an urban legend back in the day. That is hilarious. Um, all right, this place was kind of big, Superstar Studios, uh, and if there was also one of these at um, at Disney MGM, um, so th- this was a place where you could go in and basically record yourself singing over kind of like karaoke CDs, and then you could walk out with the CD. So was uh, it just audio, or did they do music videos too? There was also a music video one okay. too, and I believe I don't know if I have. I never got to do it, but I know that when we went there, um, um, some of the people that were on our one of our group trips did it. And I want to say I know there was somebody within you know our circle of of listeners and friends on Twitter I, who did it. Yeah, I know my friend, uh, our friend uh, Megan McCoy, has posted a video of her and her brother performing something but i don't remember if it's from disney or if it was universal doing the same thing at the time oh okay uh but it was definitely a video that they made uh on a you know on a trip to the theme parks right uh where you did that yeah now this was actually the place was actually operated by a company called star tracks enterprises and this this company also ran the version in disney mgm2 so this was one of the few sort of leases that were there, but I thought it was interesting that, you know, as you know, Disney MGM and Pleasure Island basically opened on the same day. So it's funny that they got them into two locations. Well, at it's, the same it's, time. it's, it should also be for, for people who weren't, were fortunate enough to not be alive back then. Uh, this is a thing that happened in the eighties that, uh, malls and, uh, vacation destinations. They, they certainly had them on the boardwalk where I, where I went growing up. Uh, they would have sound booths, and as karaoke became a thing uh, in the '80s, they, they the the availability of those karaoke tracks without having to pay someone to record them, uh, th- th- these sprung up all over the place. As cheap recording equipment became available, you'd go into this little, I mean, it looked like a phone booth, and uh, but usually a little bigger because they could accommodate three or four people if they wanted to entice a, a group, and for 10 bucks or whatever you could record yourself on an audio cassette singing a song which you can do on your laptop now but (laughs) back in the day that was not something you could do at home yeah i mean here we all are talking into very nice condenser microphones you know in the privacy somewhere i know where there's a box out in the storage unit but somewhere there is an audio cassette of me singing yesterday 
uh, I was probably 15 years old and, uh, that I did on the boardwalk one night, the studio one, it was called. And there you, you go. would, and you would always open your recordings with, hi, this is Brian live from studio one in ocean city. They, they had a script for you to, <laughs> and then the song would start. Oh, that's awesome. I, I may have to dig it up. I haven't heard it in 20 years, but yeah. So, so the story for this place is that it was built to store Isabella's pleasure gargantuan collection of 78 RPM Italian opera records. So there was, again, they tried to have this reason for a music thing there, uh, which is, it's just amazing the links that they went to in order to support this. Um, all right. Comedy warehouse. Um, that was supposed to be the power station, uh, of the Island. Uh, and then they say it, it became a storage facility when the island itself was electrified in 1928. Then it became the home to the Pleasure Island Thespian Players, which Isabella Pleasure also started, who was the wife of the founder, Meriwether Pleasure. And they would do historical pageants and plays and things. And then, you know, the building was closed and disbanded. And But that's why it has a stage and that's why there's seating. And that's why, you know, it's all set up. For a comedy club, because, you know, this was a facility where they did plays before. Uh, and we will talk in great lengths about the comedy club in another. Yeah, I, I have. Uh, that's a place I actually went. So, yes, yes. And there is a lot to talk about there. Yes, there is. Um, all right. Uh, the Adventurous Club, uh, another facility that that really needs its own episode. Um you know, for those of you that are somehow not in the know about the Adventurers Club, it was, this, I think, an absolutely wonderful sort of throwback to, you know, that 1924 to 1930s, you know, truly like sort of Adventurers Club or Explorers Club. And it had, oh, my God, just such a wide variety of things. But the the real big deal there was the live characters um, that would interact with you had multiple shows and multiple rooms um just a whole lot of entertainment very disney like i said we'll, we'll get into lots and lots of detail of that and it, the idea of that literally was that it was uh, a house that was designed to hold uh, pleasure's personal library and his trophy uh, and collection of things um and and he opened it up as a club and it you know remained as as a club until you know until the 1940s and it was sealed and then they basically opened up the doors and let people back in again and somehow you're back in 1940 <laughs> this is one of those things where it doesn't quite all come together cuz i think you're supposed to be in the 1930s when you're in there rather than in modern times but who cares that's why it gets uh, its own episode exactly exactly and next to that was the Neon Armadillo, which was supposed to be uh, Pleasure's Greenhouse. Um, it was a country and western bar. Um, line dancing. And, yeah, line dancing. Live, again, live entertainment. They actually did a show from there later on that, that did air um, on a television network. And I can't remember which one it was. But uh, CMT. Yeah, probably. But, you know... Uh, you know, this is one of those, actually, you know, I will tell you, this is one of the places where um, it was originally scheduled, to, originally thought it'd be kind of an extension to um, 
to the Adventurers Club. And and that's that Madame Zephyr or whatever you mentioned, Todd. Like oh, she yeah, was yeah. she was supposed to be a character. It, it was supposed to be this kind of combination of like a, the Adventurers Club and a magic club. Probably styled somewhat after the um the magic castle in California. And then at some point they kind of said, no, we're not going to do the magic thing. And then a lot of the gags from that ended up in the adventurers club. So like fingers, you know, the organ that plays itself, which is absolutely lifted from the magic castle uh, with the piano that plays itself there. And the bar stools that go, that would sink while you were sitting at them, which ended up in the adventurers club and the cabinet with the floating head in it, which ended up in the Adventures Club. These were all supposed to be inside of a magic club that was there. At some point, they killed the idea of a magic club and decided to do a jazz club that would be in that location. And I don't know whether it was a Dixieland jazz club, much like Rosie O'Grady's. Um, we'll hopefully find out what the details on that were. But the story is that Eisner went to Rosie O'Grady's and went into their country and western club and just saw how massive it was and how many people were loving it and he came back to the team and said we are making this a country and western club <laughs> so we got a country and western club uh at pleasure island uh so the the idea behind the name is that the uh this uh, greenhouse which had pleasure's cactus collection was uh shuttered and when they opened it up again the people discovered a uh, a family of armadillos that lived there and so the club became the neon armadillo <laughs> and the uh syndicated show that ran from there was uh the countdown country countdown it was like a weekly show that ran 1992 to 1993 and it was syndicated <laughs> so it was on various uhf stations around the country all right, perfect. That's awesome. And they did have they did have live bands here every night, and sometimes it was name talent, and you know sometimes it wasn't. But again, the emphasis on live entertainment, um, you know, just like you know Zephyr's had a live band, they also had a live band here, and, and live music was really a big part of you know the initial Pleasure Island push. Uh, you have a, a couple of those twenty one rum salutes. You don't care what the name of the band is. So. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. Um, just real quick, a couple of the other things that were there. Um, there was a uh, a, uh, a store called the Island Depot, which was where you got your Pleasure Island logo t-shirts and things. And what's really fascinating about Pleasure Island when it opened. So this is before the Funmeister. If you look back at, um, if you look on eBay for any Pleasure Island stuff, a lot of times you'll see buttons and pins that just have representations of the architecture on it. And even the original Pleasure Island logo was kind of like these three buildings with an explosion behind it with just the words Pleasure Island. Uh, that was really what they had for marketing and merchandise at that point for the island. They didn't really have, you know, anything to hang on it other, other than the architecture itself, um, which I think is what kind of led to, you know, the eventual development of the Funmeister. How, so, who's the Funmeister? Well, we'll get to that later on. So that's kind of the Mac Tonight kind of moon guy. Oh, the moon man. Okay, that's his that, name. That shows up. He he is the Funmeister. 
And when we get to him, they have to retcon him into the Pleasure Island story because he was added later on. Well, I know how they do that. They just make a plaque. They make a plaque. That's right. <laughs> it's, re- it's really tough, though, having that name from the outset. Like, what if you have a bad day? Like, you're having an off day. You're not really <laughs> feeling it. I mean, you're the fun meister. You got no choice. You got, right. you got a head you shaped do. like a moon. You got to be. <laughs> you just got to be it. there. Yeah. 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 They're both moon guys. So. Okay. Yeah, naturally, it looks kind of the same. Uh, and then there was also a, a Disney. Uh, I think, did I already mention the Mouse House? That was like a Disney merchandise Uh-oh. store. So that was there. And then uh, kind of in between uh, yesteryears in that same, there was a, a cappuccino shop called D- Desserts. Yes, I remember that. Um, a D apostrophe Z-E-R-T-Z. I think oh, it was. Yes. Nice yes. and zany. Yeah, well, so it was the extreme 90s. Yes. Right. But here we are, you know, 1989. This is before the arrival of Starbucks, you know, everywhere. So if you wanted a cappuccino or an espresso or a coffee drink, this this is where you could get it. <laughs> Dr. Evil's corporation hadn't invented it yet. Exactly. exactly. There's an Austin Powers reference for you all. <laughs> uh, they had baked goods. Paid, and remember, it was, I used to go in there to get cappuccinos because, you know, if, if after you had a long night there, you want to get a coffee drink before you drive home to especially, wherever you need yeah, to drive Especially if you're driving home to St. Petersburg. You know? Yeah. Well, I was driving home to Sarasota at that point. <laughs> yeah. So that was, that was a two-hour drive. At that, so I give me a something. cappuccino and a tank of oxygen. I gotta, <laughs> I gotta get myself in shape here for the drive. Yep. Just had too much barbecue and twenty one rum salutes. Yes. <laughs> Gosh. Uh, and then also another holdover from uh, from Disney MGM or something that opened at the same time was Cover Story, which actually had the same name as the shop at Disney MGM, and that was one of those places where they would put your picture on the cover of a magazine. Okay. Which, oh, like they do yep. with the exit to imagination now oh yeah okay it's in the dreamworks shop there image works rather i mean that was a very popular thing at you know all kinds of tourist places same same type of deal 80s and 90s uh that was a vacation destination thing they had malls there was always a stand and that was really the outgrowth of laser printers coming online and um you know, desktop publishing, Im- image editing skills, and so that somebody made a simple program, and they could put you on the cover of People magazine with a thing that says, you know, uh, "Reader's Crown Greatest uh, Kid Ever," and yeah, <laughs> they put a picture of your daughter next to it. You know. So that's Pleasure Island, nineteen eighty nine, and you would think, you know, you would throw open the doors of all this entertainment and all this excitement. And, you know, they had, you had a couple options for tickets. You could get a, you could get a one club ticket, um, I think for $8 or you could get a three club ticket for twelve ninety. I actually have my three club ticket what? From, the, from the first time I went. Oh, and actually I'll show you. So here's the, oh, the yeah, buttons that's... from Pleasure Island. That's all architecture because mm-hmm. people oh, get super excited about architecture well, that's what they're there to read the plaques about the architecture and the backstory that's exactly right. um okay so here's here's my one night three club pass which right. three clubs did you go to ah uh, well if i will tell you it was the adventurers club the comedy warehouse and mannequin's dance palace okay so i skipped videopolis east I didn't go to Zephyr's. I did not go to the Neon Armadillo because I'm, I'm not a country fan. 
Now, interesting enough, on this ticket was also the Baton Rouge Lounge, which was on the Empress Lily. Oh. So that used to be a place that you could just go, but they kind of put it into um, into part of Pleasure Island, which is kind of fascinating. So um, persons under the age of 18 must be accompanied by a parent, excluding Videopolis. Mannequin's dance palace is restricted to persons 21 years of age or older. Appropriate dress is required at all clubs. Pleasure Island club hours are subject to change without notice. And of course, alcoholic beverages may not be removed from their place of purchase. Um, so this was it. You could, like I said, kids were welcome everywhere except for mannequins. And then adults couldn't go to Videopolis East. So, um, and I want to say... Oh, I don't have the price in here. I think it was twelve bucks for a three, um, a three club pass. Um, Pleasure Island was not an instant hit. Um, whether it was the lack of advertising, uh, maybe the story wasn't elaborate enough <laughs> on the backstory. More plaques. It needed more the plaques. plaques. Need more plaques. <laughs> what are we doing um, wrong here? <laughs> yeah, yeah it, double it, the plaques. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it could have been the pricing, but like Pleasure Island was not a hit off the start. Um, well, and and you said we we talked a bit ahead of the show that you said back then a cover charge for a club would be four or five dollars. So right. So at if the you time, went to yeah a local you know a bar in Tampa or Orlando probably had a three or four dollar cover charge. You know maybe the pricing was a little aggressive, but then look at all the the entertainment you got. And, and actually one of the things that we'll mention is outside of the clubs, like there was a ton of entertainment just out on street, the street, street entertainment. Too. Yeah. Yeah. There was street entertainment. There were, there was a band that wandered around, uh, on the outside. I mean, my God, you'd be in the adventurous club and like the band would literally come from the outside into the inside of the club and play and try to get you to come outside. Um, so there was, I think a lot of this idea of like that kind of Rosie O'Grady's thing of like, oh, this will be enough if we have a lot of entertainment and we make it, in, you know, kind of engaging. It's like that's, you know, people will like they like that. They're going to like this. But they really I don't know if it was a cost factor, you know, because I'm sure it costs a lot of money to build this all at one time. And, and at that point, Disney always wanted to amortize thing, amateurize things within five years. Um, it didn't work. It wasn't working. And so on our next episode, we'll talk about Pleasure Island 1.1 and the introduction of the Funmeister and New Year's Eve every night and all of the things that really made Pleasure Island click. And probably things a lot of the listeners remember, too, because this 1.0 didn't last too long. So It did not. It lasted basically from... So we it opened up in May 1st of 1989 by... April of 1990, Videopolis East was gone. I believe the roller skating was gone out of Zephyr's Rock and Roller Dome, and it became Zephyr's Rock and Roll Beach Club. Uh, and yeah, things there were new mixes. Some of the stores are out. Uh, an arcade came in. Um, there was a bit of a change to try to rejigger it and actually make Pleasure Island profitable. A lot of work they needed to do, so... Well, thank you, Hal, for taking us through that. Uh, it's certainly starting to bring back memories, and uh, obviously, Lenny and the Magic Bee came out as a story, so I've <laughs> 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 important, important. 
important story in the annals of uh, does he know zippy the spoon boy (laughs) he might (laughs) lenny might know it the great thing is that we have artwork of lenny so people might want a lenny the lenny the frog t-shirt um all right so uh, with that said uh speaking of uh different artworks and things how you got some new t-shirts out there are famous or soon to be famous uh nba style polynesian logo is out there one of i'm hoping you're going to make this a series and it, because this little abbreviation pvr are you gonna make this kind of a series of resort yeah, so we'll so we'll tell the backstory so when when the nba went into the bubble at the disney resorts we found an old i think we purchased a brochure mm-hmm. from from the polynesian uh promoting the luau and lo and behold they used this artwork on the cover that looked remarkably like the NBA logo. Yeah. It was split in half, two colors. It's like you look at it. and I mean, I first thing I thought of was NBA. Yeah. And it, now, unfortunately, the Polynesian was not part of the NBA bubble, but it was just so close. There was no way we couldn't make the connection. And, and so we joked about making shirts with uh with that logo in the style of the old nba logo and and so and so we did it (laughs) it looks great it looks great so and we will work on we we found some similar artwork from the contemporary at the time that was used on bags so we're gonna expand the line out and uh we'll have our kind of like sports line i love uh, i love the style because it's it's got the three letters kind of like an airport code you know it's like uh I, I will add how that whoever designed this might have got inspiration because the NBA logo as we know it now came out in 1969. So. I'm willing to bet that when that came out, it was pretty hot. Yeah, like that was it was probably a big deal and very influential. So I would not be at all surprised. All right, and uh, on our media front, we've had a whole bunch of new uh, videos be added. We added a uh, home movie from Epcot Center, September 1983. It's actually a video. Um, we did some uh, some videos that we did on our, our latest uh, movie night, Polynesian Contemporary Resort from November 1987. And we've got uh, Living with the Land with a live narrator and the Fantasy Folly stage show, which actually has the stage going up and down too, which is a, a great rare find. Excellent. Um, and then, uh, again, also on the media front here, Brian, you put some slide carousels together. The Hyatt Regency Grand Cypress was a fantastic one. And uh, I think you had another one in there since we last chatted, too. I can't remember. I had a but, couple, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of great things. So, as always, sit down and uh, uh, take, take, a, take a look at our, our uh, archives of photos and everything. So The Hyatt Regency Grand Cypress I did a whole article on because it's the first uh, luxury, it was first five-star resort. That opened in the Orlando area. <clears throat> it opened in 1984, uh, and that you know, the, it's said that the Eisner team stayed there to get some inspiration for the deluxe resorts like the Grand Floridian that they would build after the fact. Uh, but there's a whole art, and this, this set of slides was taken about six months after the the resort opened. So yeah. uh, it's a really neat glimpse at it, and gives you a little bit of the history of what life was like off property back then. All right. And as always, thank you very much to everybody for listening. If you can, give us a shout out on iTunes, if possible, or wherever your favorite podcasting app is. If they've got ratings, give us a thumbs up. And if you have any questions, by all means, you can email us at podcast at retrowdw.com. We look forward to bringing you uh, Pleasure Island Part 2 next month. How is going back into his research bunker. He will not be heard from for approximately 28 days until we record once again. So please uh, understand there might be some delays in his response time. But 
Uh, anyway, with that, gentlemen, thank you very much for your time as always, and thank you to all of our listeners. And uh, we'll talk to you next month. With that, Brian, take us out. Follow the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society on Twitter and Instagram at LBV History and on the web at lbvhistory.org. Follow Todd McCartney and Retro WDW on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Retro WDW. For all things Retro Disney World, including exclusive merchandise, visit us on the web at RetroWDW.com. On Twitter, follow our web designer, Jason Bartell of Deepwater Studios, at JasonDWS. Our announcer, Andre Gardner, at Andre Gardner. And follow our hosts, Hal Bowers, on Twitter and Instagram, at GoAwayGreen, and on the web at KingdomOfMemories.com. For JT Couser on Twitter, at LS1JT, on YouTube at Rubber City Motoring, and on the web at RubberCityMotoring.com. And you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at Brian P. Miles. Retro Disney World is the monthly podcast of the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society, a nonprofit, nonpartisan, tax-exempt 501c3 organization, and is not affiliated in any way with the Walt Disney Corporation or any of its subsidiary or affiliated entities. Onward and upward.